Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about um, characters whose give a fuck has gone missing. And I titled this podcast, But Why Are All the Fucks Gone? Because immediately when um, this question um, was posed, I thought about Elizabeth Swine burning all that rum on the beach. Because this is literally the epitome of a woman whose fucks are gone. Yeah, they were. She, she, <laughs> she is... <laughs> Started a bonfire in the middle of pirate territory with all the rum on the damn island so that she can get rescued. She doesn't honestly, I think, give a fuck who shows up to rescue her from this island as long as she gets rescued. Yes. (laughs) The rum is gone. But yeah, so it's just, it, it, it really amused me and it kind of connected in my head and it's been that way ever since I saw it. Um, but, uh, so we're gonna talk about that, you know, how a character gets there. Because I think that it's important, we need to, I think it's important to recognize how a character gets there. That's part of the characterization. When you're getting a character to that point it's cool when you're getting a character to the point where they're going to have that come to jesus moment or whether they're just going to say fuck it and walk away their motivation is super important and and if you don't build a foundation for that if there's no motivation if there's no clear reason why your character has gotten to this point they just look crazy or dumb or both yeah and some characters have a very clear it's actually in some characters case we wonder why they're not why they give a fuck is not already broken um and others it's really easy to see how they could easily you know get there some characters it's a little harder to get them there because there's not really a good canon foundation for it so if there's not a good canon foundation for your characters give a fuck being broken you're gonna have to put something there um yeah tony stark is definitely one where his his give a fuck I think got broken several times, and it's just his eternal optimism, which is not something you would think of for him. Really, it's what what got him up and moving again. Mm-hmm. But it's also this is an area where fandom can make a rotter lazy. If you opened a scene with Tony Stark cussing out the other Avengers and labeled that fic post Civil War. Not a single reader in the fandom would question your choice. You've given zero foundation in the narrative of your fic. Your opening scene is him having a bitch fit and cussing out all the Avengers. And your reader wouldn't even stumble over it because of canon. You've done no work to get your character there. But they also would stumble over it because of their own desire. Right. Yeah, even if they want to see that, right? But even if, even if you know, I'd be sitting there going, "But how did he get from canon where he didn't object to this behavior to this where he does?" Yeah, but you're not the average reader. That's true. And then I could also say for Tony Dinozo, if you open a fic with Tony Dinozo leaving in CIS. Every reader that encounters it, number one, is looking for this fic. They want to read a fic where Tony has left NCIS. It's actually a fucking trope in NCIS. They're looking for it. They want it. They're going to open it up. They're going to cling it. They're going to cling to it, and they're going to love it. And they're going to. And their suspension of disbelief is fucking up there with the space station. 
But, and this is true, even if you don't do a damn bit of lead in. Because they want it. Mm -hmm. But it's lazy. Now, I enjoy writing that come to Jesus moment. I enjoy writing my character, just that last give a fuck, just going out the window. And this is what happens afterwards. But I need to, I need to, as a writer, remember um, that this particular skill needs to be developed on a larger scale. So I don't let fandom make me lazy. Because you could not do that in an original work. If you did, if you opened an original work with your character losing their shit on their co-workers and flipping out and losing their mind and then stomping off and quitting, immediately your reader is wondering if your character is the antagonist or the protagonist. Because there's zero foundation for their behavior. Right. What did you change? You got to come up with some reason. I mean, usually these kinds of things are positioned as canon divergence. Um, and when it comes to a canon divergence, you got to put something. It doesn't even have to be very big, but just something. Something that somebody said to them, a moment of realization, just something that they had a switch in their brain that went, oh, I don't actually have to take this. It could be somebody being supportive at the right time when they hadn't had that or as a moment when they really needed it. Um, just something. I mean, you could insert... Um, a friend that's come to visit that's sort of like, why are you putting up with that? It just You could have them, like in the case of Tony, he sees a healthy um, I interaction with law enforcement um, where he's like wondering, why don't why isn't it like that on my team? Or just, just something to give your character a reason to have this realization. Um, and you can actually start the story with them already gone if you want to, but you still need to kind of backfill why. Why did they take off? What was the what was the impetus for their departure? Or not, you know. I there are a couple of scenes I would love to see that were canon. I would like somebody to tell Gibbs that he's an abusive bastard. Because he is. Mm -hmm. He's an emotionally stunted abusive bastard. I would like someone to tell Scott McCall, hey, you know what? That thing you did to Derek when you forced him to bite that hunter, that was rape. And what is wrong with you and how are you this, like this? You know, hey, how about you not violate somebody's body autonomy? How about that? You know, and so there are lots of moments in various canons where I might say, hey, you know what, Steve Rogers? You're a dick. Did your wife ever know she was going to work every day and working with Nazis? Asking for a friend. Inquiring minds want to know. Hey, Steve, when you almost killed Tony Stark in Siberia, did it cross your mind once that you were killing the only person that could literally, physically, mentally, emotionally stand between Earth and Thanos? Did it cross your mind? 
that you could have potentially killed the only man who could create the technological advancement that could have prevented the invasion? Was it on your radar at all? Or hey, was it even on your radar at all that that was actually another human being who had fought with you and fought for you? Who came there in friendship? Who deserved your loyalty as just as much as Bucky Barnes, if not more, in the circumstances? So yeah, there are questions that you want to, you want characters to be asked. Hey, Nick Fury, was it always your intention to be a lying bag of dicks or what? Let me know. <laughs> but really? Hey, Gibbs, did you know that you're an abusive piece of shit? Has anybody ever told you that? And the interesting funny thing about Gibbs is that he's an interesting case because we do, and I've done it too, where it often winds up being Tony who is pushed to the point where he has to stand up to Gibbs and, you know, walk out or do something about it. But it really was never Tony's job to rein Gibbs in. No. It was his chain of command's job. Well, we know why the, Vance let him get away with murder. Eventually, eventually we do, but it, but see, Gibbs didn't have that information early on. So why didn't Vance rein Gibbs in? I mean, Vance was so preoccupied on reigning Tony, and he just let Gibbs do whatever he wanted. I mean, although to be fair, Gibbs and Vance had known each other for years. But the question somebody asked the question that kind of inspired this podcast, which is about, um, you know, what it what does it take to get a character to that point, um, and Tell us my document. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> but also, how to deal with their departure in a way that does not destroy their life. Right. I mean, sometimes I see things in CIS fic. I'm like, don't you know you just ruined Tony's career? Mm -hmm. Don't you know you just had him commit treason? Are you fucking serious right now? <laughs> Well, that whole conviction rate and solve rate in NCIS, that's Fanon. There's nothing in canon that ever talks about their conviction rate. Like, I think they have, like, one case that gets reviewed for that, and it was Abby thing. There are some mentions about the team solve rate. Um... And I think that there was a mention at some point with the solve rate not being down when Tony was in charge of the team. But it's not like it's a big thing like it is in Fanon. No, it's yeah. A very, it's, it's, a, it's a very minuscule thing. But the thing is, there would be statistics about that kind of thing. I'm just not sure that, you know, when it comes to solve rates, conviction rates, arrest rates, all that kind of stuff, I'm not sure how much of statistical information you can get out of four months considering how long the the investigation trial conviction process can be but also it also keep to keep in mind is the mcrt didn't exist before tony came to ncis tony and gibbs were partners just like gibbs was partners with 
Well, conceivably, it was somebody else. It, it, it just Gibbs wasn't running it. Black Adder or whatever. Uh, Black Adder came later. Black Adder wasn't there when Tony joined. She was she was the latest. Um, then there was the dude on the ship. But Gibbs just had partners. And then him and Tony moved into the MCRT. So whatever conviction rate they had as a team, they had together. Except for that right. four months that Gibbs was semi-retired. Right. So there so when you see a fix says that you know that when Tony joined the MCRT their conviction rate went up that's bullshit because they came in together It wasn't something that Gibbs was running by himself before Right the in, Tony joined yes, that's that's correct Tony joined NCIS before Gibbs was on the MCRT so um and conceivably and they Gibbs, were partners and then they become right. subordinate Really Right yeah. I mean, he becomes Gibbs subordinate. I mean. Because Burley had left already before Tony ever joined. That's why Tony had never met Stan Burley. Um, but they wouldn't have come into the team as equals because Gibbs was already a senior field agent. And Tony was probationary. Like, like his first year. And then he would have been, I mean. He had to have so much experience before he could even be at SFA. So they were not of equal rank coming into the team. Yeah, they weren't of equal rank, though. I think that there's a probably a, a little bit of a difference in the treatment but, you know, and the way it's handled men mentally ver of somebody who has no law enforcement experience, like McGee, who was like went from college to, you know, Fletzy and joined NCIS versus somebody like Tony who had six years of law enforcement coming in. So yes, they both are a probie for a year, but I would imagine that it's in the eyes of um, law enforcement agents. It's, it'd be quite different in how that person be perceived if they already had experience coming in, just like a transfer agent from another agency would be perceived differently, even if they're technically on probation for a certain amount of time. Okay. So it doesn't matter actually what the wiki says. It's not accurate. Wiki, the wikis are the wikis are not only sometimes wrong, but are um, contradict contradict each other. Where did that go? <laughs> it was too big. So yeah, I mean, I think that I have actually read that wiki article, but it's not it's not backed up by actual canon dialogue. But where is it? I was I was in the middle of reading it and it vanished. Oh, it, now there's a little thumbs up sign. <laughs> now it's oh. back. <laughs> But no, I mean, that's not actually backed up by dialogue in the show. What, what which piece isn't? That um that Franks ran an MCRT. Franks and Gibbs were partners. Well, Franks was Gibbs's trainer yeah. and Gibbs was his probie, but I don't think it was ever canon that he was an MCRT. Right. If you look at the um Of course it wasn't NCIS when um Franks was in it either. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was NIS. Um, but if you look at the episode, the old, the episode that gives the most insight into the background of that is the episode Baltimore. And it's pretty clear that um, Gibbs is sort of a solo agent. He's working that case by himself. He doesn't have a team. Burley is gone. Other agents are doing him favors um, because Stan 
and that's Dan. Um, Chris Pachi is doing him favors and running some information for him. I think that Burley was probably his partner, even if he did call Gibbs boss, but it was clear they were a two person team because the person who's filling in and doing everything for Gibbs was uh, Chris Pachi, who was uh, another senior agent. Now question. Um, in that scene where he tells Tony he's being transferred, which is ridiculous because that's not how that would work. <laughs> That he's being basically co-opted, you know, by by federal service again. Not how that would work. Um, doesn't he say you're going to be my new partner? No. What happens is Gibbs invites Tony to NCIS. Um, they had met. At, they had when Tony went to confront Danny about. Um, Gibbs had come. Gibbs had come to talk to Tony, and Tony had, you know, said he was leaving. So Gibbs invites Tony to NCIS. Tony's not sure why he's there. He comes to talks to Gibbs and tells Gibbs, you know, he's still not sure what he's going to be doing, you know. And Gibbs says he understands why Tony didn't didn't turn Danny in because Danny's his partner. Blah 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 blah. And then you know, Tony just thinks they're shooting the shit. And Tony says he doesn't know what he's going to be doing with himself next, but he'll figure it out. But he can't stay there. And the next thing you know, they're in front of HR. You know. Um, Gibbs tells him rule five, which is you don't waste good, and has Tony turn around and face the door to HR. Um, I don't remember what Tony said. Gibbs gives him a little smack on the back of the head. Tony says, what the hell? He says, don't do that again. And Gibbs walks off and quotes something from Butch Cassidy. So okay. um, he never says he's co-opting him into federal service. Or anything okay, like so that. I think I must have read that in a fanfic, which is, you know, probably that that's, that's how that happens. But um, the real problem, not only with NCI, was it yours? Okay, there, there's so, she ruined me. There's so, no, there are several stories where Gibbs thinks he just comes and takes story, Tony. That's not it, that's pretty common. Okay, trope in that fandom. Um, but what I would say is that it producer confirmed or not, if it wasn't in the show, how is that canon? On the other side of it. Not only do the wikis contradict each other, the show contradicts itself. Yeah. I mean, how many different birthdays does Tony have? Like four? At, at least three that I know of. Um, and then sometimes even when they give his birthday, the, the, the dates, some of the dates around that birthday don't wind up lining up. So, um, and there's something else that I remember reading recently that I just kind of shook my head at because, oh. Um, did they change his education again? Yeah, there was something about it. It's just there's all these pieces of information. It's like they can't keep track of the background details that they've put out. So it just, I was looking up some information on on the two different NCIS wikis, and then there's also some information on Wikipedia, and um, the, the information between them, between the wikis and Wikipedia, were not the same on the same data point. I remember what it was. One of the few things that is consistent in, um. The yeah, they wikis. definitely did not have a show Bible. No. But one of the things that is they are consistent about is the background, the, the order and former police departments that Tony worked for. Because um, he, he worked for them in the order of Peoria, Philadelphia, Baltimore. Which, again, winds up being its own problem. Because Baltimore makes sense as Tony's last stop. Because Gibbs wouldn't have been running an op in Philadelphia so far away from D.C., Right, where where he was basically on his own with no backup. Don't even get me started on that. I mean, honestly, he probably shouldn't have been in Baltimore by himself, but Philadelphia would be a real stretch. 
But one of the sites says that Tony joined NCIS in 2003. Tony did not join NCIS in 2003. He joined in 2001. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's a data point that's easily verifiable in canon, and yet one of the wikis has it completely wrong. So you can't necessarily count on the wikis for that kind of information. But anyway, but because of the whole mob undercover thing, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense that Tony's last stop was Baltimore. If Unless the mob was in Philadelphia? Well, no, the mob in canon, the mob was in Baltimore. That's so crazy. That's canon. Um, which you learn in Frame Up, in the episode Frame Up. Um, but um, it made more. It would make more sense, logically, for it to have been Philly. Because you just don't go undercover in the mob and then just keep working in that city where anybody could recognize you. Because assuming, let's say they protected his identity, right? It actually winds up being a good reason for him to have left Philly. But assuming they had protected his identity, they wouldn't leave him in that town to be recognized by random mob people. It just doesn't make any sense. So I always change it to be Philly because it makes more sense. And I think he was too new to be undercover with the mob when he was in Peoria. Yeah. But um, Also, I'm not sure how much mob they have in Peoria, but maybe they have a ton. And I just <laughs> don't know. Um, but Baltimore <laughs> makes no sense. That mob is fierce over there. <laughs> And these, I didn't even twig into it until I was rewatching Frame Up because I'd seen you know those episodes. Frame Up's not one of my favorite episodes, so I had never had reason to rewatch it. And I was rewatching Frame Up because the whole my whole starting point for um, if found is the episode Frame Up, and so I'm rewatching it carefully to get the timing down on that, you know, and like when things occurred and then that blah blah blah. And all of a sudden, you know, they talk about they're asking for the list of enemies for Tony. And um, so I'm, I don't remember who says something about Mike Macaluso being at the top of the list. Um, and McGee says, who's that? And Gibbs says, it's a mob boss that Tony brought down in Baltimore. And I just kind of like, I paused the TV and I went, what? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. What are you talking about? I think it doesn't, part of, it doesn't make any sense. And also, Star is right. If if he had been an undercover in Baltimore, a relocation to DC wouldn't be feasible either. No. Realistically, they probably would have moved him like across the country if they wanted to get him away. But you know, because Philly actually isn't even that far from DC uh, it, when it comes to this kind of thing. But you know, a, a little further is good because Baltimore and DC. There are people who live in Baltimore who work in DC. It, it's not like. That's just. I read a thick once where Tony got kidnapped and taken to Philadelphia for the sole purpose of pissing off the mob he left behind there. Like he wasn't supposed to come back to Philadelphia, and that was the rule they made. Like the out they gave him because the mob boss liked him, I think, in this fic. And he ends up breaking out. <laughs> and for some reason, he he talked this hooker that he that he recognized and she recognized him into helping him cause a distraction so he could get away on the street after he got out of this hotel he'd been chained to the bed in and I, I'm thinking where how did I get here how did I read this fic 
I think you're conflating two stories. Am though, I? The story, the story with the hooker who helps him mm -hmm. is the one where Mossad kidnaps Tony and takes him. Oh, it is right. It is the one where Mossad kidnaps him and takes him in a hotel. No, not that no. Rossi didn't know. I, I, no, you're, you're right. The one we're talking about where, because it, 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 is, it is a prostitute who, who helps him hide. And um, but Ziva's behind that. Um, it's a yeah, story I by actually Rita Rothy knows this story, so th there's no way that was it. Yeah. Um, so I think I think the author is like Cat's Meow or something like that. That that sounds familiar. But then I also read a really good one once where he got kidnapped with Vance's kids. Yeah. Yeah, I know which one. That's that's the one with the wump that don't end. But it, you're still right. kind of you're still rooting for him the whole way. You're like, go Tony, go, because he's he was a badass in that wump with that wump too. You know, he just he was a badass. But then he, I, but I think he taught one of the Vance kids how to hotwire a car, and they were all like, "My kid stole a car for you." <laughs> but didn't one of the other ones have to remove a bullet or something? Yeah, or the, <laughs> the older son, his daughter removed a bullet. She's real proud of herself. <laughs> it's great stuff. <laughs> I, I mean, it's don't... kind of a nightmare to read because he gets so hurt so much, and you're like, "Oh God, he's not going to survive this." How is he? But yeah, but the kids telling the story afterward is actually the funniest part. Yeah, because they're all would... in on he stealing was... cars and taking out bullets, and he was a boss about taking protecting those kids. He was. Um, because he was on protection duty, I think, at the Vance house when the kidnappers came. And he wound up running with the kids and the kidnappers were pursuing them. I think that's the story. So and then one of the kidnappers ends up in the trunk of the car? Because um, Vance had to testify. And they they were trying to kidnap his kids to make sure he wouldn't um, um, testify in the case. Yeah, well, and, they they, had and Tony was to, like, oh, were, well, you know, you've sent your thugs. And he goes, how are you going to prove that? And he says, well, I got them in the car. They're in the trunk. Oh, that's this right. Is the he car. Had, he, the girl's Tony, <laughs> Tony did have one of them. That's right. Yeah. Um, it, it is really good. I, if somebody could find that story, that would be really helpful. I, I'm crap with remembering titles sometimes. So, um, but it's one I, know I, I read it on the pit. If that helps at all. Yeah, I think it. I think that's where I read it too. Although maybe it's been moved to fanfiction.net since then. Reaper found it. Is it just called Run? I think so. Let me that is it. Again. Yeah, this is it. But um, it's it's called Run by Jasmine two thousand nine um, on on fanfiction.net. and um, the Wump is intense. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it's one of those stories that I really enjoy, but I read infrequently because I, or I just reread the end because it, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of wounding. Tony goes all in on protecting those kids. And I think that's part of the reason why it works. Cause you could see him putting up with a lot that he probably wouldn't be able to endure if he didn't have those kids that he was protecting. So it's a good device to, you know, it was a good plot device to bring those elements together. It's a great story, but the kids are the best part. They're just all in on the whole thing. Stealing shit, bullets. <laughs> Put the body in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing that it ends well makes it easier to read a second time. Because I did actually halfway through the time thinking to myself, should this have a death, a 
character death warning. And I got really nervous. It's <laughs> like, is she going to kill him? Is he going to bleed to death after he finishes saving the kids? <laughs> so, but yeah. So, yeah. So it ends the, well. It does end well. It ends very well. It, and, and Vance has to, you know, it, it, it's one of those stories where, you know, part of the thematic elements are to have Vance develop an appreciation for what a badass Tony is. And there's, I can't think of a better way to do that than have Tony save his kids. Um, and be a boss about it. So the question that kind of, at least in part, inspired us to talk about this was the person who asked, can you please plot a character that has lost their give a fuck? Would that have to be include time travel or be made in AU to be believable? Would that change the character if you change their response that drastically? How do you walk that line? So there's kind of two, there's like a lot to unpack there. But um, if your character it has a set of circumstances in canon that would make it really easy to bring take them to that give a you know lost the good of give a fuck it's a lot that's different than a character who you don't see that it, it's certainly you have to do more work um okay. oh the other story we mentioned with the uh, tony escaping to the hooker that was back to israel and it is by cat's meow which is spelled c-a-t-s-m-e-o-u and that is also on fanfiction.net back from Israel. Um, yeah. I don't know why that hooker part stood out to me the most. But that's just what I remember the most about that story was the hooker. I remember his I mean I thought it was a good interesting exploration of his contacts in Baltimore um, and that they were still intact. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why it jumped out is it was a good it was a good plot point. Mm. Um, but when you've got a character who is not at that point in canon where they're not anywhere near, there's not any foundation for them to have a broken give a fuck. So we'll kind of parse that. Let's parse it into two and approaching okay. it two different ways is one, the, the character like the Tonys where um, there's clearly a good canon foundation for it already. And you just need to give them a little bit of a nudge. Um, and then the other is a story that's a character that's not there. And I'll have to think of characters who aren't there. Cause I don't usually write those kind of characters, but right. um, I, I like the character who should have the bro give a fuck broken. But the way the question was phrased was, um, would it have to include time travel or be made an AU to be believable? Well, everything's an AU any anyway, but, um, for the character who like like the Tonys, I know I don't think you have to go wildly divergent AU to get their give a fuck broken. Um, I don't think in any of the fandoms I typically write in, like you, when you look at um, it, like John or Rodney and Stargate, like you could think you could get them very quickly to the broken give a fuck. I mean, honestly, very quickly. If I was having to deal with the Wraith on the regular, I think my big give a fuck could be broken just like that. Um, I mean, really, it's just one bad email from Earth away from it. Right. Um, Tony Stark, it's really easy to get there. I think Bruce Banner, it's very easy to get him there. Um, certainly Tony Dinozo. Um, Will Graham, I could definitely get to broken give a fuck. I think his give a fuck's already broken. I'm not sure what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, really. I Sometimes I think the only reason he keeps doing what he does is because he doesn't have anything else to do. So... <laughs> <laughs> and then Hannibal comes along, gives him a hobby. Um, yeah, John Shepard definitely. Can, styles can really go off the rails really quickly. Um, but I would be more interested as far as Team Wolf Cannon goes. Um, 
exploring Derek. Yeah. Losing his last give a fuck. Because there were several moments in Canada, that, and I thought even watched the show where people deserved to get their ass handed to them by, by Derek and didn't. Because mm-hmm. frankly, Scott McCall deserved a face full of alpha werewolf within the first season. Derek should have whooped his ass. I don't care that he was just 16. I don't give a fuck. He should have beat his ass down like a child. Like a stepchild. Well, hate. but like an immediate re- immediate reaction to a to an offense is a little different than, you know, systematic bullying for a year. That's completely um But anyway, um I think there's a lot of the Teen Wolf characters you could quickly quickly easily. Good god. You could easily get them to the place of a broken give a fuck. Um but I could name three off the top of my head that need that just need to be cussed the fuck out. Scott, Allison, Lydia. Any Argent. Um, yeah, any Argent. All the especially, Argents. Especially, in, especially Chris in season two. I mean, I know they tried to... I think the audience has really responded well to Chris. So they tried to kind of retcon him a little bit. Yeah, they, re- they yeah. retconned him a little bit in season three and beyond, but maybe even later in season two, but early season two, he was a hot mess. Um, he supported his father doing a lot of shitty stuff and that's canon. Um, I mean, probably really the only character who didn't need to be cussed out in season one is probably the sheriff. And he's just trying to do his damn job. <laughs> well, and honestly, he could probably do a little bit of cussing out too, because, um, well, he works instead of dealing with his kid, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I know it's easy to go to Styles give a fuck to get broken, but actually I think it would take quite a lot because Cannon didn't manage to do it to him. And so you have right. to take that into consideration. I actually think Cannon did break Garrett's Derek's give a fuck at some point. But I'm not sure it ever did with Styles. And um and so I think uh, I could easily seek you know, clearly Peter's give a fuck got broke. I think Noah's give a fuck got broke. I don't think Styles give a fuck was broken season two. He kept trying. He kept trying to make Scott a good friend. He kept trying to keep Scott on the path. Um, which did he ever stop? When he wasn't no, possessed by he a never, demon thing? No. No. I mean, the closest I thought I saw to uh, it, it to Scott's give up, I mean, Styles give a fuck getting broken, was when um, Scott accused him of being a murderer. Um, Scott Styles just kept on trying. So, you know, when you look at, I think there were times when Noah's give a fuck was kind of broke. I think definitely Peter's was broke probably before the show started. Um, Derek's definitely got broke. I'm not sure Cora ever had a give a fuck to break. Um, I think Isaac's give a fuck got broke. Uh, definitely, um, definitely, uh, what's their faces? Um, Erica and Boyd, their give a fuck got broke because they tried to leave. They're like, we're, we're so done with this, we're out. But it's easy to go to Styles as the one to go. It's easy to get Styles there. And I go, mm, actually, he's the hardest character for me to take there because he never quit. And I think that you have to do, and that's the issue is when you've got a character who kind of in canon eventually had their moment where they went, eh, 
um, it's easy to see what what takes them there. When you got a character who's kind of ride or die and never gives up, you got to really give them a pretty powerful catalyst, which is why it is often a a it, it is a it's a trope that works is that the sheriff gets hurt is what pushes Styles over the I edge. I was just thinking that it would it would have to be his father either his father gets severely hurt because of something Scott did um or it gets him killed. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you have to kind of push Styles pretty hard because Cannon didn't manage to do it. And part of that is probably partially um running on a lot of adrenaline and when you couple that with, you know, just the fact that he's Im- he was immature, 16 or 17 years old and you know, making shitty decisions about the danger in his life, trying to protect those around him. Um, you know, you're going to have to push him pretty hard um, or let his give a fuck break when he's older. Because I think that honestly, just maturity could be could be the catalyst, actually. It's, it's not a stretch to take somebody who's been put in life or death situations at too young an age and who has a lot of, like, honestly, blind loyalty to people. Um, well, a change of perspective. You did you you, you right. did that one in that one where he goes off and lives in San Francisco, near San Francisco. Yeah, duty yeah. of the living. The duty of the living. Yeah. He he gets a perspective change, and it his give a fuck isn't broken. In fact, he gives a lot of fucks in that fic, but it's different. He I mean, give a fuck bounds while he was gone, and he comes back with a different set of priorities. Right. And and so you, I think maturity can be the catalyst for Styles give a fuck to break, which is just like, oh, my God, why were we putting up with all of this crap when we were younger? Because um, running from one adrenaline fueled nightmare to another um, can keep you from getting perspective. It just starts to feel like more of the same. So. But I. I don't think, as we saw Styles in canon, that he's an obvious character to say his give a fuck is easily broken. It's just really not. You're, and by easily, I mean like just a little tiny tip could push them over. Because like in in canon, I think that Tony just you just need a little tiny a little tiny push. Because eventually, there were many times when Tony's give a fuck got broke. Actually, in canon, he lashed out at Gibbs repeatedly. He'd get like up to his eyeballs, and they'd have a moment, and then eventually he'd decide to stay. But clearly, he's capable of getting to that point. You rarely saw that with Styles. Not when it came to Scott, and conceivably, that's, that's especially when it came to Scott. Yeah, and conceivably, that's we want him to get his fuck give a fuck broken by. But I think that you could probably trace that back to the death of his mother. He was very young, and Scott represented um, stability in a time where he had it nowhere else. His mother was dying, and then she died, and his father buried himself in work. And was there alcohol involved as well? Yes, okay. when he was younger, yeah. So, and then Scott becomes this, hey Chris, Scott becomes this source of stability who has this really loving, dedicated mom. So there might be a little bit of jealousy there as well. And so Scott becomes this, yeah, he becomes um, Styles' emotional support animal. And when Scott moves on from that role, Styles does not. 
he doesn't stop seeing Scott in that role. Even when Scott becomes a werewolf and suddenly becomes popular and athletic and, you know, gets that high school dream thing going on. Um, which, honestly, Styles is much more attractive. But that's not the point. <laughs> From a physical perspective, Styles is much more attractive. But, <clears throat> anyways... That, that's not really how it works in high school. But uh, it's that emotional attachment to Scott never changed. Apparently in canon. And that's a damn shame. Yeah, it's it's brought to an unhealthy level of codependence. And people pointed out that um, that one of the common tropes for getting for pushing styles to his losing, you know, breaking his give a fuck is um him getting pushed out of the pack. Um, and I agree that I've seen that trope used quite a lot. My issue is, is that I have read some, some that are really good, but often that trope is not so much used to get him to break for a broken, give a fuck so much as just a broken styles and sort of the, you know, the beat down that kind of whole beat down. And sometimes, you know, kind of going into moving into that kind of like almost suicidal territory for him is just that's that's not a broken that's not the kind of broken give a fuck we're talking about so I mean, that, it'd be nice kind of to read a fic where styles is like i don't actually want to be in your pack scott i don't trust you scott you make terrible choices scott you think body autonomy is a myth scott Fuck you, Scott. <laughs> it's just, just once. Yeah. I do think, I think, well, I mean, I think that some of Scott's choices, I mean, it's just. I can't get over that. I mean, it's, it's heinous. Scott, there's a lot of things that are fucked up, right? But that one particularly really messes with me. But consent is a big trigger for me, or lack of consent. And so that that whole thing, um, to have Derek force something, have that forced on Derek in a situation where he was a born wolf, and to him being turned into a werewolf was a gift. And he was forced to give that gift to a fucking Argent? It's just, it's so Gross. ugly. Yeah. Um, so somebody mentioned that that Scott making a bad choice and Styles going, "This is my line in the sand. If you do this, I'll stop you." Um, the thing is, that actually is canon, kind of, and it didn't stop. It didn't. It didn't push Styles to the edge, which was that the whole thing around Theo and Donovan and the um, Styles was distrustful of of Theo from the beginning, and um, Scott wouldn't listen to him. So, you know, at, at what point when Styles is saying no, 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 I mean, I think that I don't, at that age, at the age that these critical events occurred, there wasn't really anything that Scott did in canon that would push Styles to the edge. So you got to ask yourself the question, if you're going to put in an event that, style, that uh, Scott is going to do something that pushes Styles to the edge, how extreme does it need to be considering 
how extreme some of the circumstances in canon were. Um, no, I know he didn't listen, but but Styles didn't seem to care in canon. So if you're looking at what's going to push Styles to the edge, you're going to have to look for something more extreme than happened in canon. Is my point. And I know he listened, Scott didn't listen to anything, but it never bothered Styles apparently. Or it bothered him all the time, but not enough to well, walk away. Thing. If you're going to draw a line in the sand and someone crosses it, you have to be prepared with consequences. And if you're not, you're constantly redrawing that line. It's like when I was taught to use a gun and I was told if you pull your weapon and you pointed at somebody, you need to be prepared to fire it. And if you're not, you have no business owning it. Yeah. It's not actually setting boundaries if you don't enforce them. Just saying, this is my boundary, and people walk right over it, and you go, oh, okay, let me back my boundary up. That's not, it's not actually setting boundaries. It's well, just what, verbalizing boundaries. boundary too much for you? Okay, well, we can discuss it. No, no, no. That's not how that works. <laughs> Because that's how you end up getting run over over and over and over again. Yeah. And that's how you learn that's how some people learn that they're not allowed to have boundaries. Because they never enforce them. And you see that in real life. But yeah. when you're creating a character and your character does not follow through with the line that they've been given that you say okay this is, your, this is your character talking my character is not going to allow this but then they do what you're doing is, is you're creating the worst possible thing for me in fiction which is the unreliable narrator <laughs> <laughs> No, non-linear. Uh, the worst possible thing would be a non-linear, unreliable narrator. This is true, but, but but I mean, you know, as far as like characterization goes, the unreliable narrator is the worst thing. I hate. Yeah, it. it's 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 so hard to deal with. Um, so somebody asked if would an outside party pointing out how Styles' boundaries have been disrespected could push him to it. Um, a sixteen-year-old boy, seventeen-year-old boy, somebody telling you your boundaries aren't being respected. Probably not, but I did. I think you could kind of take that idea and take it a little bit more extreme, because some characters I do think just a conversation with someone who's got some reasonable perspective um, at the right time could change a lot for them. I think Tony Stark could be that character. Tony Denoza. When you're talking about somebody like Styles, who's deeply entrenched in his in-group dynamics that he believes are protecting his father, just saying your boundaries are not being honored. No, I don't think that's going to do a damn thing for him. So you but, have to ask them questions. Right. Well, what I did in Duty of the Living is that I just changed a small thing, which is that Styles came clean to his father after the kidnapping. And honestly, I don't know how he couldn't have. It always doesn't make a lot of sense to me that he couldn't have, didn't come clean to his father at that point because shit got real the minute he got kidnapped and it, it got real before that. But the minute a hunter took a human kid and beat the crap out of him as a message to a werewolf. I mean, the fact that he didn't tell his father was just, and the fact that Noah let it go is whoa, dude, I can't even. So it wasn't that styles actually had in that story. It's not that styles got magically better perspective about things in that moment. He just admitted what was going on. 
what gave him perspective was that his father made a deal with him. Look, it's about to be summer vacation. I will deal with this supernatural stuff and your involvement in it, but you need to get away and get some perspective. I want you to go stay with your godmother for the summer and get some perspective. And that was what showed him the difference. Was he got out of the constant adrenaline, the constant crazy making. And he got an outside perspective on the supernatural from somebody who was in the know about the supernatural. And that is what enabled him to turn into, start becoming an adult and become mature about the situation. Very now, good. His, it's a very good device. Yeah, it wasn't that, and that's not what broke his give a fuck. His give a fuck got broke when his father got hurt because of Scott's actions. But even then, it wasn't like raise the universe kind of give a fuck, although pretty close. But he, you know, he knew he was on the edge and he was too powerful to be on the edge, which is why he let Derek rein him in. I read a story once. It was um, Tony is in a cemetery. I think he's visiting Kate's grave. Not sure. He's visiting somebody's grave. Um, and comes across David Rossi. And they end up on the bench. And, you know, David's a profiler. So he sees something's pretty damn wrong. Or maybe he overhears Tony talking to Kate. Either way. He asks Tony what's going on. Tony gives him the basics. And Rossi's sitting there. And he says, well, you know. <coughs> you probably need a new job before this woman kills you. And Tony's like, what? He says, no, you need a new job before this woman kills you. I think it might have been post-boxed in. And I think that's this, when... This in sounds the familiar, but I can't place much about it. It's, it's when Tony... It's, it's, a, it's a very short pick, maybe like 2,000 words. And it's like, it. Um, it's when Tony realizes that he's not crazy. And if he's not careful, Ziva is going to kill him. Or get him killed in some fashion. If she hadn't already been trying. Oh, it's on about the Wild Hair Project. It's on the Wild Hair Project. It's um, Ellie found it for us. It's called it's While, you can, Sadria, While You Can by Sadria. Her author note is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I once posted on Facebook. <laughs> You can find it on the Wild Hair Project. It's called While You Can. But yeah, and so it's a, it's a, it's really impactful because it's a outside perspective, and he's you know he's he's just really blunt about it. You, she's gonna get you killed, so you need to get out while you can. So and that's a way you know that's a way of of introducing um a a moment to your character where they they have an outside perspective, um. Point out the bleeding fucking obvious to them. In a way that it can't be ignored. And you need um, in a in a in a with a character like Tony Stark or Tony Dinozo, the right person at the right time in a simple conversation, I think, can be that catalyst. With someone like Styles at the age he was in canon, it's more like you need to be removed from the situation, and you need you know three or four months to let the adrenaline die down, and you need to ponder your life choices with somebody who can give you some perspective. So, it's a similar device, but it just you know. It's just kind of got a tweak. You got to kind of work it a little bit differently for a character who I think is as stubborn as Styles is. And I don't think personally, don't think blind loyalty is any kind of loyalty. Um, I actually think I need to write a story where Noah points that out to Styles. 
<laughs> um, you too. Write that down <laughs> in, in, okay. in case you forget. <laughs> um, well, if you look at Tony Stark, I think an interesting character to to give him that moment is a character often overlooked um, as an option, and that's Jarvis. Mm-hmm. Um, he he trusts Jarvis. And it can be said honestly that Jarvis knows more about Tony Stark than anybody else. And I think that if you set up the right circumstances and have Jarvis say or question, ask just the right series of questions, um, that it could easily put Tony on a different path. Well, I watched all the way up. I skipped Civil War. I watched Age of Ultron. I skipped Civil War. I watched um, what's the one before Endgame? Um, Infinity Wars. And I watched Infinity War. Then I watched Endgame. And you, I, Prince, I think you might be new, so you you might not know that I had a stress nosebleed the last twenty minutes or so, or ten minutes of Endgame. So I won't be watching any more Avenger movies. Well, I just also, I mean, I will like I will watch the Black Panther one-offs and stuff. But other than that, I mean, I feel like that Tony Stark was the end of the franchise for me. Him dying was the end of the franchise. So, uh, but Jarvis, I do think is underutilized in general. It was he. I think Jarvis was underutilized in canon. And he's definitely underutilized in in fandom. Um, but I think another catalyst potentially could just be Tony needs some people in his life, or even a person in his life who appreciates him not for, for who he is and not what they what he can do for them. Or and, what they can make him into. Yeah. How he can be manipulated. And he just, I mean, Bruce Banner is a potential source of that, but it's really underexplored because I don't think Bruce really, I mean, there's some, a little bit of a, he relies on Tony in a lot of ways for safety, but I don't think that that would prevent him from, giving Tony perspective if he thought Tony needed it. Um, I but just I think, think it needs to be said that his circumstances are so emotionally draining that Bruce Barron doesn't have a lot to offer anybody. Yeah. But he still could be just an occasional, you could, it's pretty easy to have him be a, a voice of reason at a time or two. And honestly, one of the things you can do, we both wrote shorts where, um, Elizabeth Ross comes back into Bruce's life and then you, you can do something minor to fix Bruce's life and then Bruce becomes a stabilizing force for Tony. Um, then the first time, you know, Tony's in his lab and, you know, he, he needs to get this done. He's almost at a breakthrough and Pepper comes through and <sighs> ruins his mood, ruins yeah. his momentum. Bruce can point out, you know, like, hey, does she do that often? It what? <laughs> yeah. Or even have Betty? Like, is that how that works around here? <laughs> yeah. Does and she I, often treat you like a child? Because you're a grown man. Yeah, she does treat you like a toddler. Somebody pointed out that there's some good Stephen Strange, Tony Stark stuff that use that kind of basic model, and I agree. Um, it just comes later in canon than I would like. Um. I prefer to, you know, kind of interrupt the cycle before the Winter Soldier, um, and 
Stephen Strange wouldn't be a force in his life until well after that. But I agree that Stephen Strange is often used in fan fiction as that outside. Because one of the things, the reason I think that Stephen Strange works with Tony, just for me, is that Stephen doesn't need anything from Tony. He's absolutely nothing. So Tony has, he, he doesn't need to manipulate, he doesn't need to tiptoe around Tony or feel like he's, um, he has to stay on Tony's good side for money or housing or anything like that, right? So um, I think Stephen Strange is a good potential character to use as a catalyst for Tony. It's just, it's unfortunate that his arc in the MCU timeline is after Tony has really been through the wars already. But thank you. Thank you, Prince. I appreciate that. <laughs> I am always willing to throw Alex Shepard at Tony Stark. I'm always willing to read it. Um, see how that works out. <laughs> get 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 in early. I would not want to read. Because, well, you know, it's it's actually stepping on my OTP. But I find the idea of Rodney McKay and Tony Stark in the same room exhausting. I only wrote it for a little bit in the story and it was tiring. I could not see them as actual partners. Because Rodney is... And Tony is... And together that would be... A lot of... <sighs> I mean, honestly, it reminds me of that fic. And Tony Stark wasn't in it. But Xander, Rodney, and Blair, and somebody else. Xander who? From Buffy. Why don't you read Xander's stories? <laughs> I didn't. Okay. I mean, it was a long time ago before that thing happened. Okay. I'll get kidnapped. And I think it's actually called Missing But Presumed Still Talking. They're all, they all get kidnapped together. I don't think I know this one. But I'm, but I'm pretty sure it was Xander Blair and McKay. And maybe there was a fourth one. I don't remember. Um. <clears throat> It might have been Charlie. No, no, no. Xander was definitely involved. And Daniel. Yes, Daniel Saatchi. It was Daniel, Blair, Rodney, and Xander. It was something Charlie's called like something missing, presumed, still talking. Um, Ellie wrote a really good Tony Rodney broship. Um, uh, when did you write that, Ellie? Zelia, I'm, I'm talking to her like she's here. I don't even know if she's here. I think she is. She is here. She was here earlier. They have to tell me. Oh, was it last year's rough trade? Well, see, it's a rough trade. Um, and that's that was I thought I thought the dynamics of Rodney and Tony becoming friends was just it was it was banging. It was really really good. Um, it's called Trust Issues. I think it's published, isn't it? Yeah, the four military men was definitely a lady, Rob, a lady Rob, but I think that Miss Gordo that, from earlier is the one who wrote the one that was presumed to still talking. Yeah, four military men has not got that kidnapping scene, and that the friendship in that one is Rodney Daniel, Blair, and Tony Dinozo. They went to high school together in that story. Um, but so 
Yeah, I I agree with you. I find I find the idea of Tony Tony Stark and Rodney McKay in a relationship to be exhausting. And I actually just kind of made a joke about it a little bit. Not them in a relationship, but in Send for the Man, um, Alex's mother put them in separate corners of the lab because they wouldn't stop arguing. <laughs> <laughs> because it that's all sense. Because that's the way I perceive them. Um I mean, I don't think they would stop arguing long enough to get laid. They'd probably still argue while they were in bed. They'd be arguing while they're fucking. You know, I just, I, I couldn't. You know, I mean, it, it, and kudos to the person who can make that work. Um, I just don't, I think that I would be, I would be too immersed in their argument to, to ever get the plot moving. Um, they would definitely have to live in different galaxies after that split up. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you'd be like, okay, I'll take everything in the Milky Way. You can have everything in Pegasus. <laughs> um, if it was an 852 prospect, it might be on AO3. It's just those stories are really hard to find because they came in as part of Open Doors. Yeah. But, uh, and I don't remember the details. I just remember them all getting kidnapped. And it was kind of like that story where the kidnappers want to give them back. Like, just wait a minute. They're going to give them back. They don't actually want the people they kidnap. They just think they do. <laughs> give it a minute. I love nothing more in this world than a dead air tag. Except for that one on fanfiction.net that makes me cry. Oh, the one where Tony's dead and Gibbs buries him with... Shannon, Shannon Kelly. Yes. <sighs> but ask me how many times I've read it because I've read it about five times. <laughs> Kira makes, I'm pretty sure she's got a special bookmark for stories where she needs to cry. You know, she needs a good cathartic cry. <laughs> Sometimes crying makes you feel better, even if you're, you're all stuffed up afterwards. <laughs> that had a very father son vibe. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I start crying at the point where he finds him. I think he knew before he even went down there, but just walking down there and seeing, and it was just like, and then I'm just crying the rest of the way through the whole thing. <laughs> it's like that fucking scene in Still Magnolias. I start crying when she goes to get the baby and he's walking down the sidewalk. <laughs> Yeah. I'm good. <laughs> and then I cry the rest of the movie. <laughs> I think my tear fest starts at the at the at the funeral. Just can't help. When she really? flips out, when she flips out about she wasn't, you know, you're not supposed to go before your kids or whatever. I just uh, <laughs> Yeah, but Clary ruins that cry. Take a whack of Weeza. <laughs> no, I mean you start laughing, but I'm still crying. <laughs> I was actually too angry at the death scene for Sirius Black in the Order of the Phoenix to actually cry. I was so furious I could not cry. And normally I'm an angry crier. <laughs> But she like surpassed my ability to cry while angry, which you know is like 
pretty difficult to do, frankly. But the only death, actually, in Harry Potter that made me cry. There are two. This is going to tell you a lot about me, actually, as a, as, as a person. Um, Hedwig, Hedwig and Dobby. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I already knew what they were. I was like, Hedwig. Well, I actually, I was really, I got pretty emotional about Fred. Was it Fred? Fred? Yeah. I, it's Fred that dies right now, George. Yeah, I got pretty upset about that. But it was more, it was not so much even because a character died. It was like the idea of the twins being you know, separated. Was, yeah, that just was just like, ouch. Um, but yeah, I thought the saddest deaths were... were I felt the reason I didn't, I was, I like, yeah, I was like really angry about Sirius Black's death because it felt so pointless. I felt like he had been used as like the longest running plot device ever. Um, he served no function but to give Harry hope and then dash it. So Hedwig and Dobby made me cry. Um, I was actually angry at Fred's death as well because I was thinking to myself, why couldn't that have been Percy or Ron? Right? Or Ron? <laughs> It'd have been so much better if it had been Ron. <laughs> I'm just definitely Ron. I, I I definitely have favored Ron, and then and then Hermione even saved from that. But see what's really ugly about the whole thing with Sirius Black is that earlier in the book, Harry has a vision, um, and ends up saving um Arthur Weasley's life, and then he has that vision, and it ends up getting his godfather killed. There's an ugly mirror there that I don't like. Yeah. So, when it comes to characters where they're already, as we said, like, in difficult circumstances, um, and you just kind of need to tip them a little bit, it you don't have to reach very far to get them there. Um I, we we didn't talk about Stargate much, but I think with the circumstances they're in, it just it it's just one good CO, um, a res, you know just somebody who is a little bit more responsible could make a big difference in pointing things out to them. One one bad circumstance could push John and Rodney both over the edge. Um, I or think a series I, of very small incidences. Yeah. I think there were times in canon where they were already pushed pretty close to the edge. So, you know, when you see that, when you've got kind of that foundation that's already there, it becomes a little easier to, to, to just kind of put in a little nudge and have the character just go, Oh, Nope, I'm done. This is too much. Um, and actually with people who are um, starved for, people who are they can trust like Tony Dinozo and Tony Stark I would say that kind of usually comes well in the form of somebody who is offers them some kind of unconditional support without asking anything from them um, but with somebody like John and Rodney is I think they need somebody to kind of help to, I think it takes somebody a little, little bit different perspective to give them a push um, because I don't think that they're starved for people they can trust Either a different perspective or an unexpected loss. Right. That could have been prevented. So that's a really different kettle of fish to the idea of a character who, in canon, because 
Actually, before we move on, let me check the other half of the question. Um, would that, I don't think you have to do time travel because a character get broke to give a fuck. I mean, you certainly, a, give a, a broken give a fuck could definitely um, be a reason for time travel. Like, what pushes your character to want to travel back in time? You know, broken give a fuck could definitely do that. Um, I think that's definitely the base of Darkly Loyal. He's got yeah. that shit left. I mean, they're they've got nothing left but running. And unleash your demons for sure. Yeah, because um, he literally has he just has nothing left. I mean, the the universe has been, you know, the, the snap is pretty much should be all the impetus anybody needs to want to travel back in time. Um Well, in that old black magic, they didn't have a choice. It was Neville's give a fuck that was broken. <laughs> Yeah, somebody's give a fuck was broken, but it was, and I think, I think their give a fuck had to get broken once they got back there because it's like, well, now that we're here and and Draco doesn't have the dark mark anymore, well, they're, they're going to have to just do whatever they have to do to fix shit. It's like, but there's actually nothing more entertaining than to have your character have that moment where they travel back in time and they're like, well, since we're here, <laughs> right, we, we might as well fuck up everybody. We're here now, so we might as well just make the most of it. Um, but when it comes to, I mean, I've plotted several time travel stories for Teen Wolf, um, and all of them, the impetus is because catastrophic loss. Because mm -hmm. um, I don't know what else would prompt those characters to go back in time. They just happen to find a time travel ritual in a book and say, wouldn't it be neat if we could go back and save these two people? I mean, I think the world, things have to be pretty fucked up, right? That's so. actually really funny because in, I actually have a Harry Potter fic that's, it was marginally online at one time where Harry, <laughs> Harry finds a ritual in Grimwald place that a black ancestor created so they could go back in time and kill somebody again <laughs> because they felt like they didn't do it properly the first time. And it's in this book. And he was like, huh. <laughs> but Harry's circumstances are pretty extreme. Yes, his, his are extreme. He's stuck in the marriage to Jenny Weasley and he can't get out of it. But the whole ritual was built because some asshole in the black family tree was like, I want to go back and kill that guy again, only better with, with more vigor. <laughs> but, that is, but that is not your typical scenario for time travel. And that no. guy was... You say he's an asshole. Um, so and, typically, and a typically black. You're, yeah, and a black. So typically, you aren't trying to position your um, protagonist as you know a dark magic user with a broken give a fuck, <laughs> who's also an asshole. So <laughs> that those are fun. <laughs> yes, they are. But when it comes to, um, so if you want to do time travel, a broken give a fuck can be a good reason for that but what it that needs that needs a massive amount of catastrophe i think to to justify time travel um where your character does it on purpose but when it comes to so i think but i do think if your character's give a fuck is broken and they're gonna for starters you want a believable catalyst what pushed them to the edge why was this why did this circumstance was it different than how they reacted in canon so you got to fill in those gaps it doesn't have to be exhausting sometimes you can just or exhaustive sometimes you can just give 
a, a sentence or two to give the reader something to latch onto so that it makes sense that this character has been has been pushed too far. Um, I often use dead air, the lack of backup, the lack of um, um, management doing anything about the lack of backup as an impetus for Tony's give a fuck to get broken. And even though canon doesn't really support that as being what happened, there's one of the reasons why I don't write in canon after that point is because it makes no sense. So for me... I'd never trust them again. Right. So for me, that point, that event is the catalyst. And as far as I'm concerned, canon is wiped out after that point. Because it just... I, I can't. I can't even with that shit. Um... I think I've only, I don't think I've ever written anything that occurs post-dead air. That if where you did, dead I would air ask wasn't... you if you were okay. Maybe I'd call your sister and say, hey, is Julie okay? Yeah. <laughs> did she hit her head again? <laughs> very likely possibility. Um, I, I think the only thing I've even written that occurs post-dead air, where he's still at NCIS even, in, in is there's a short where he's with Steve. But Tony um, was given a different team. He's not even on Gibbs' team. He left the team, even though he didn't leave NCIS. Um, I think that's the only thing that even occurs later in canon, really, than Dead Air. And it's because I just cannot see how that wouldn't be a catalyst. Because I would think for someone who is career law enforcement, that your partner's leaving you deliberately without backup would be such a heinous betrayal that it would it would destroy your ability. I don't even know how he would get up and go to work the next day and trust anybody to have his back ever again. Uh, it, it's, I mean, and even if it was a joke, the, the idea that they think they could joke about that would be enough. Right. That he, they're joking about his actual physical safety in the field. Would feel like, I, even if it was a joke and they didn't actually do it, he would need to feel like he at least needed to be on a different team with people who didn't have such a questionable sense of humor. Cause some things are just not funny. So, but I'm so no, setting you up to die is actually one of those things. that's not funny. <laughs> right. So if you're going to use a canon event as being your catalyst for your character to go, Whoa, no, I'm done. Like boxed in or whatever. It then becomes disingenuous. If you keep the character on the team. Because you can't say their give a fuck is broken because of that event, and then it doesn't have an impact their actions. So, for instance, you can't say that Tony's give a fuck is broken about boxed in, and then he doesn't leave the team for two years. That doesn't make any sense. So, if you want, if you want to, you know, have a divergence around a canon event, you know, and that's the event that you have the broken give a fuck. Just be sure to just lock it in. Make sure that you know the reader understands why that's the thing. What's an interesting character to take down that road would be Bilbo Baggins. Broken give a fuck. Yeah, because Bilbo is tender-hearted. Yeah, and even as Thorn Oakenshield lays dying, he's already forgiven him for what happened. His insanity, his behavior, and he's crying for him. So, and Bilbo has so much heart. So, to get him to that place where his give a fuck is, is broken. Talk about canon circumstances, Rogue. Um, you have to get him. Yeah, 
you, you, you have to hit him in the right moment. And for me, I think that moment would be when he's told what the ring is. When he's told that his little magic ring is the one ring. I think it'd be really interesting to explore that. Because often we see Bilbo Baggins travel in time. And normally it happens like when he's on the way to the Undying Lands. He goes to sleep and he wakes up in the past. Um, it isn't something that he sought out or asked for. Um, so it would be interesting to see him live his life. To have this character in the twilight of his life. Um Finding out that this magic ring he's carried his whole life, most of his life, because um, he's a he, he's 111 at this point, right? Well, actually, I yeah. think in canon he's actually closer to 130, because there's a there's a significant amount of time between. I think it's that's 130 was the age of the old took. Because in the movie, you get the impression that Gandalf was gone a few weeks after Bilbo's birthday party. But it was actually quite a bit longer than that. It was years. Because Frodo was 50 when he goes. So he's 111 plus 17. Um, so 100 and 28, 138 or something like that. 28. No, 100. No, 138. 128. <laughs> <laughs> so he's 128. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he's 128 when he sails to the Undying Lands. But he's 111 at the um, time of his Perfect. party. At the birthday yeah. party, and yeah. but he's older than that by the time they get to Rivendell because there's actually quite a few years between Gandalf seeing the ring and then leaving. And this is what's killed me: how could Gandalf fucking forget what the One Ring is? Well, anyways, Tolkien, it's okay, it's okay, baby, it's okay. Um, considering considering what he was in, on Middle Earth for. It seems really crazy that he would get confirmation once he threw it in the fire and saw the script that he would need to go confirm what it was. But, you know, whatever. It literally said in Elvish on the side of the fucking ring what it was. And he said it sounded familiar and he had to run off and go check it. Now, in Canada, he's gone several years. <laughs> Not several weeks. He's gone several years investigating this ring that seems familiar. <laughs> but anyways, it's okay, baby. It's okay, Tolkien. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I just don't see how he didn't know what it was. I mean, what does it say actually on the ring? I mean, it's an elvish, but what does it say? One ring to rule them all, doesn't it? I mean, if it literally says that, come on now, Gandalf. Um. Okay, so this, uh, this somebody says that he was a hundred and he was one hundred and twenty-eight when Bilbo and F when Bilbo and Frodo were together in Rivendell, which was seventeen years after 
um, the 17 year gap before Frodo left the Shire. So they were in Rivendell together at 128, and then they left together, um, I guess, four years later. So he sailed for the, he went to the, left for the Undying Lands when he was 132. Um, so he makes Frodo put the ring away in a little envelope. And it stays in that little envelope in a, in a trunk for 17 years. And then he comes back to the Shire 17 years later and tosses that little envelope in the fire to read what the ring said. That doesn't make it. What? No. That's exactly puts, what happened in canon, though. Doesn't make any sense. He saw the ring when Bilbo took it off and he realized it was magical. So what and the ring told, says... He told Frodo to hide it. So I had to look up ex exactly what the ring says. It's one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. Just suffice it to say, there are some plot holes, but there often are. But I agree with you that somewhere in that... Year. <laughs> but I actually, I think, and I think we've seen it. There have been stories that have focused around this as Bilbo and the Undying Lands coming to some realization about what was going on in his life and choosing to go back in time. Um, so, but yeah, because it's, that's that, but it would be really interesting to see where if he's do, making this, this choice himself, because he's like, are you fucking serious? Are you, f because, and no, my boy is not going to do this. He's not. No, fuck you. He's not going to Mordor. Fuck you. And doing something about it. Doing whatever Bilbo does. <laughs> because often it's pressed upon him. Or he wakes up in the past and has no idea how he got there. Um, or he wakes up pissed off and angry in the past. But to actually for him to actually seek it out. Because his give a fuck is broken. Yeah, and that's an interesting dynamic with Bilbo is that his, his give a fuck is broken because he's going. It's not give a fuck because give a fuck broken because he wants to you know burn the world or whatever. Or he's just fed up with everyone. He, I could see him going back in time and he wakes up in his younger body with a clear head, and he's got probably two objectives: dump that ring before you know Frodo has to bear that burden again, and two, make sure the Durans survive to live to old age. And I would imagine that, you know, anything outside of that goal, he has no fucks to give about it. The ride is only visible when the ring is heated. And so Gandalf runs off and reads about a whole bunch of rings, then comes back to the Shire 17 years later and tosses that ring in the fire. Why didn't he just do that to begin with? That's a lot of reading, Gandalf. Right? You know. And is it 17 years of reading, really? Was it really necessary? Anyways. It's okay. But I agree with you. Bilbo's a, a good example of a character that you have to push them pretty hard to get their give a fuck to break. And you've got to introduce some circumstances. The Something. library loan was really long. <laughs> Man, those <laughs> library loan fees are no joke. <laughs> Which library was he trying to get access to? Um... Probably one of the Undying Lands. So those bastards are really stingy with books. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, so, 
certainly if you're working with a character who's got a broken give a fuck, I would definitely recommend a sharp branch away from canon. I mean, I although it could be entertaining to read a character whose give a fuck is broken where you you try to stay at least for a little while closer to canon where like they're like doing something manipulative and sneaky in the background to fuck everybody's shit up. And then that could just be like, you know, bitching about it in their head. I gotta let it happen. I'm gonna fix this your whore wagon. Going to come to my house and steal my silver spoons. I just gotta let it happen. I'm gonna fix her little red wagon. <laughs> I'm about to give her this a little red wagon just deserve, so I can fix it. This bitch does not deserve my good biscuits, but I'm gonna cook them like I did the last time. Now I need to put that in a story where a character <laughs> gives everybody on their shit list a little red wagon. <laughs> it, just, it just shows up in the mail. <laughs> it has to be Tony Stark. <laughs> you, you, can, you can just imagine Thaddeus Ross calling him. Tony, why did you send me a radio flyer? Because <laughs> <laughs> I like you, Thunderbolt. <laughs> I can't put anything in this. It's too small. <laughs> <laughs> so I made it into a bar in my office. It's really cute. Very retro. A note from Bob. That would give it away. Um, <laughs> that could act for something only Dick does is send out the red wagons. <laughs> Shit, I got a red wagon. Fuck. What'd you do? I don't know what I did. I didn't even get a phone call from Bob. Suddenly there was a fucking red wagon in my house. It was just in my house. <laughs> How did it even get there? The alarm wasn't even deactivated. Um... <laughs> So when you've got a character like I'm trying to think of other character we can talk about that would need a pretty hefty push, because I pretty much work with characters who I feel like are on the brink of their give a fuck being broken. Um, I don't know who that is. So is that one of those um, from that new show, um, um, Untamed? Yeah. It's only familiar to me because I saw a character thing on Rough Trade. (laughs) Was it last time? Time before last? Anyways. So I can't can't speak to what it would take to push a character that I'm not familiar with to the edge. Um, But we did talk a little about Styles, and I think he qualifies as a character that's harder to push. A gentle character Uh, that gets pushed to the... Blair. 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 Blair, it's almost like he doesn't have it, it it's almost like his field is growing all the fucks. So um what's it gonna take, Blair? Um, I think it would take Jim's death. Dude, go to the corner. I'm just saying I'm just saying. If you're if you're asking what it would take to send Jim to to send Blair over the edge, it is either Jim dying or Jim betraying him. I think Jim betraying him would be a, sort of a broken give a fuck, but in a broken hearted kind of way. And that's just right. a sob fest that nobody needs. Um, it would have to be a temporary death, of course. <laughs> I mean, still Christ on a cracker. You just can't, you just can't say Jim died. And I'm like, just can't blurt it out like that. Well, what else would do it? I mean, if I, I don't actually would want to write Blair broken hearted because Jim fucked him over or, you know, 
I wouldn't want to write well, that, but actually, I think if you're writing, if you're writing a Sentinels and Guides are known kind of story, I think all you'd need to have is somebody who targets Blair's pride in a in a in a damaging way for his give a fuck to just take a vacation. And I think he could become very dangerous. Um, I I, th- I think he could you know go full on Papa Bear kind of mode if his if his pride was in danger or. If someone, if them, if they'd actually been killed, somebody had actually been killed. So, um, but I do think it would take something pretty extreme like that, like people he's respond, either somebody, he, the person he loves has been killed, or people he's responsible for are in danger. Well, the fact of the matter is, Willow, um, there's a difference between being betrayed by someone you think is your friend and being betrayed by an intimate partner. And when I write Jim and Blair, they're intimate partners. Um, and it is a whole new kettle of fish when you um, are betrayed by someone you are emotionally and physically intimate with. Because the Blair and Canon um, trust Jim too much, really, honestly. Oh, yeah. Vicky, is your computer okay? <laughs> Is it okay over there? Um, I mean, Jim expects all the trust. He expects Blair to trust him implicitly, but he doesn't trust Blair in the same way uh, in canon. And so I don't actually write their canon relationship because it's... There's, an, there's, an, there's no equality there. Yeah. So I don't write it. So if I'm writing them in an equal romantic intimate relationship um there are two ways for me to go to break blair's last give a fuck and that's uh, catastrophic injury death or um personal betrayal and i wouldn't want to write personal betrayal no but i think if blair is the head of a pride and somebody in his pride was killed like deliberately targeted and murdered um particularly if it was to like get at the pride or get at him and him blair I think that would push him right over the edge too. Um, but it would have to be something that's pretty, that would cut pretty close, you know? Um, what I would say about Blair and the thesis being published, um, it is deeply 1000% unrealistic. It wouldn't have happened that way. Yeah, you can't just publish somebody's thesis without their permission. I mean, there was no contract. There was, I mean, and honestly, it would take months, if not a whole year. Yeah, if and if, um, um, and if his mother had um, forged his signature or something, or written a, done a, done something on his behalf, that that is the act of fraud. There is so immense that she would have probably have to. Uh, she she would she'd have to leave the country to be, so she could hide from the subpoenas for the lawsuit she's about to get served with in more than one direction um but in also publishing an academic thesis before it's even presented is well number one theses aren't published by traditional publishers anyway they're published with an academic press through the university and it, it's just what 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 happened in um in in Sentinel Canon is ridiculous across the board. Yeah. But but um 
I mean, Jim was angry, and he, I think he needed to give Blair time to explain. But the way Jim was talked about, like a research subject, I think would have been infuriating to anybody. But here's the thing. What did he think Blair was writing? Well, that's true. But um, certainly he didn't think Blair was going to use his name. Well, no. And that was another thing that's actually deeply inaccurate. No, that's just not how that would work. Right. That's like that's like in the NCIS fix, right? Where Brad Pitt publishes a paper about Tony's, um, his his why pestis infection and then uses his name on it i could totally see them writing a paper about tony's condition they aren't going to give his name no in a not. medical journal i mean come on i mean because i've read stories where somebody meets tony and go oh i read about you in such such medical journal no no that's not the way that works no 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 number one i don't actually think that brad Pitt would have been allowed to write an article about because I imagine that shit was classified and would be classified for decades. Because this wasn't well, just some version of the plague. This was a designer plague. Yeah, because it was one minute he says that I mean he, they'd have to leave out the part because then you have you have questions, right? You leave out a um you leave out the bit about it being engineered to be antibiotic resistant, and then everybody who reads the article goes, "Well, why didn't you just give him some antibiotics? Were you guys using this guy so as a guinea pig?" Point of this, right, because it's right. like right. And then if you publish, if you do conclude that information that he was um, given an, an antibiotic um, resistant version of the plague. Um, they're like, You're well, who did someone is doing biological warfare? Someone had had engineered a bioweapon. So there's no way that actually got published to begin with. Hi, Twy. I see you. Sneaking in. Hey, Twy. Um, was that the electric slide? Or like a boot scoot and boogie? Inquiring, I'm gonna go. Mano. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with, yes, <laughs> yes. So she electrically boot scoot and boogied. <laughs> um. So let's let's look at a different character. That and this is an here's an interesting this is kind of an interesting thought experiment. This is just my opinion about him. But Don and Charlie Epps, I think both of them have moments in canon where the give a fuck got broken, and it wasn't that interesting. <laughs> So it's not very useful for me as a writer the way either one of them react when their give a fuck is broken. Because when Charlie's give a fuck is broken, he goes and does math. <laughs> he just hides in his but garage and does math. That's not necessarily true because there, there, there was that one time where he got accused of treason. Because he didn't like what they told him and his give a fuck was broken. So he sent the guy that day that anyway. And he was accused of treason and then he couldn't work with the FBI and his security clearance got busted true but i don't know that i felt like that was his give a fuck being broken such as that he felt like he had to draw a line in the sand and it just was a little bit i don't know i mean that's but it's you're it's right and it's true i guess it all depends on how you interpret what's going on with him there but um to be fair he did not expect his he didn't expect what he got he really didn't obviously no um be curious if he did and did it anyway yeah, yeah. But he felt like, you know, he did take a, a stand there for his belief in the sanctity of science and stuff. Um, and then... Um, but are there really any circumstances in canon where a nuclear response was warranted? 
Um, well, you, we got the nuclear response from Don a bit over the Crystal Hoyle situation when they kidnapped Megan, and he authorized Ian to torture Buck. Um, that was, and that that, and the thing is, Cannon didn't gloss over how problematic that was because that was biting Don in the ass for years. That he did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, but it's clear we know how these characters react when they're give a fuck. It's broken. This is what they do because they had those moments in canon where they got pushed too far. And for Don, pushed too far with somebody he cares about or that he thinks he's. Re- it's not, it's more than cares about. It. It's people he thinks he's responsible for being harmed. Mm-hmm. Um, so when that ex girlfriend of his was. Uh, I think she committed suicide, actually. And then there was the witness, the woman he had dated who was in witness protection got murdered. And Mm then, um, um, and then Megan getting kidnapped. There was the one where Amita got kidnapped. And Charlie blamed Dawn. But Amita was kidnapped because of her programming. Right. Um, But Charlie originally blamed Dawn for it. Yeah. Um, Charlie had a fair amount of it's interesting because the episodes the Amita and Peril episodes kind of came later in the series and there was the one where she was engaging with that guy who was killing people in the game where they were doing a sort of a, that sort of pseudo scavenger hunt outside of the game to win the prize money and Amita was the only person who played the game and played it well mm-hmm. um, I can't remember what that was called and then there was the episode where she got kidnapped by that guy who wanted her to hack those banks mm-hmm. and um Charlie was remarkably, it was this weird sexism that suddenly came out. Like in the one with the game thing, he started telling her what to do and she's not working on this anymore. Not asking her what she wants to do because she has her own security clearance and can do her own consulting with the FBI, which she did right. when Charlie was forbidden. But he just got all up into bossing her around telling everybody what Amita was going to be allowed to do and not. And it was like, this is not a good look on you, Charlie. <laughs> you don't do well under pressure. Um, Yes, it's kind of really weird, but their circumstances were often so ordinary that it's kind of hard to see ordinary for them. It's kind of hard to see a moment in canon where I would go, okay, this is where everything goes wrong, and this is where this is what we're going to do. Because in I, the end, they get their ship righted every um, every time, basically. Yeah, but you could. But my point is that you see what kind of events push them. Canon gives you a foundation with them mm-hmm. for what kind of events push them to shitty behavior or or just, you know, losing. And honestly, in their case, that's what is what it happens is they kind of, you know. I think they could both go off the rails at the same time if their father got kidnapped. Yeah. I mean, honestly, in that particular instance, California would be lucky to survive it. Yeah. And weirdly, weirdly, I thought it was interesting that in the episode where Charlie was nearly killed by, I can't, but I want to say Charlie did a press conference about how he was helping the FBI and the FBI got really mad at him for talking about how he was helping them find the guys involved. And I want to say a kidnapping or something. I can't remember what the circumstances were. And um, these guys targeted Charlie and they nearly killed him. Don's reaction was actually pretty tame. (laughs) It was sort of like, I wondered, it actually, it was so head tilty because I actually made me wonder if the um, 
if if the writers had forgotten what Don's characterization was like, because he'd already had that moment about Crystal Hoyle at that point. Um, and he went off the rails about Megan disappearing, clearly, because he asked Maybe they were Ian, trying to demonstrate that he'd grown. I don't think they succeeded because, you know, Don still had moments of going off the rails. It just, it was so weird that considering how, how goofy he could be about Charlie, that he was so, he just was, his, so, his saying Freud was pretty on point when Charlie calls him and tells him some guy's shooting at him. He didn't tell him at first, but then he calls after the guy drives him off the road and nearly shot him, nearly killed him. Don was pretty chill about the whole thing. I mean, I'm not saying he was like, oh, okay, let's go have some coffee. But comparatively. <laughs> you want a donut? <laughs> yeah. Because I would love a donut. Yeah, Charlie didn't Don't tell him when, when he first noticed. He did tell him when he first noticed the truck following him because he knew Don was mad. That's true. But I don't know. When Charlie, when Don did find out, it was kind of. Eh. That's what you get for talking to the press. I think that was counterfeiting, actually. That was. was the, I think that was the counterfeiting case. Um, but anyway, yeah, I agree with you that numbers isn't isn't for me a great fandom to want to push my characters to the broken give a point, give a fuck point because I don't know what I would do with it. Um, I'm not really in favor because the thing is when you're when you're pushing your when you're trying to give a character tap to. to break their give a fuck you're trying to achieve something whether it's you're giving them the impetus to travel back in time and make sure the durans live and that little ring gets tossed in a volcano or you're trying to get tony to leave ncis or um hook up with a hot navy seal right or right or you're trying to get um styles to to you know just kind of throw up his hands and say enough scott and go make Derek a functional human being you know, whatever it is you're trying, you're trying to accomplish something. And in the case of numbers, where canon has kind of shown us a, a roadmap of what it takes to push these characters to that point, there's nothing I'm trying to do with their broken give a fuck. I mean, I'm not interested in, in taking them out of can their canon circumstances, really. I'm not trying to push them into such dire circumstances that they want to leave L.A. Um, so you know, getting the break, getting to that point of the broken give a fuck doesn't serve me. It's usually in a fandom where you want to push your character to, to take some action, like, you know, having the come to Jesus meeting with Scott or leaving NCIS or double birding um, Shield. So you know, going off and doing his own thing. So it just that's usually why you would do that kind of thing, or you know. Harry goes to Harry Potter goes to um, America and goes to school instead. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of characters where you can do a lot where they are at the point where they go, that's it. I am done trying to make this situation I'm in work. Don and Charlie are not really those characters. Alan's give a fuck could definitely break. I'm just not sure what what it would what it would what it would do for me. Dark, I think that maybe the sweetest thing you've ever said to me, and I'm not even sure you meant it that way. <laughs> Dark says, this is why you are not a hurt comforter and angst writer. Julie, you do things to characters to serve a purpose, not just because you can. I mean, it does make other writers sound like sadists, though. <laughs> well, oh, wait, you know, true. <laughs> 
Sometimes you reread something, you think to yourself, what did this character ever do to you, writer? That you're doing this to them. Did they run over your dog? What what happened? Did they date the prom queen when you wanted to date them? I mean, <laughs> just what what happened? <laughs> but you know, but I, honestly, honestly, the reason why I think it's difficult for me to kind of pick a moment for Donna or Charlie is that I don't actually find either one of them fun characters to write. I mean, I think Rob Morrow is hot. He's hot as fuck. So I could actually get behind writing some hardcore erotica for Don Epps. Yeah. <laughs> but to actually give him some big giant ass plot line like I did for Unleash Your Demons, I, d I don't see it. No. Well, I find, I mean, I could write Don, Don or Charlie as like side characters in somebody else's story because like they'd be interesting sort of fill-ins of a CBS show kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But because I tend to think most of these CBS procedurals are all in the same universe, but mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but um, as central characters, I find Charlie exhausting. Um, He'd be a lot of work to write, and it would not be because of, of his intelligence. Because I don't find writing Rodney that kind of daunting. No. There's not much better, actually, than Rob Morrow and Thigh Holsters. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could write a short with Don and somebody else, but it would be very, you know, it would be like 5k or less. More than that, and I just, I don't know what I would do with him as a central character. Ellie's got the crack train wrapped up say, and that ready is, to leave the station. That's utterly cracktastic. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's easy to take a character like Daniel Jackson or, um, or Rodney or Tony Stark or even Harry Potter and, and move them around in their canon circumstances to create situations that are very interesting to write. Um, honestly, if I was going to write Daniel Jackson, let me take that back. <laughs> I'm like, I know you wouldn't. What are you talking about? <laughs> I fucking hate him. I can't stand him. <laughs> But I don't bash him because he's Lady Holder's unicorn, right? So um, I could not write Daniel Jackson. But I think it would be interesting if you took... I know, I know I'm being hate, I promise. Um, if you took a character like Daniel Jackson and um, considering the way um, things happened with his, with his wife... Um, Although this wouldn't, this would um, make uh, Lady Holder really deeply unhappy since she ships him with Jack. But uh, to write a story where um, Daniels goes back in time to save Charay. But I just, I mean, I don't know how Daniel, all people, I mean, does, he's, he's, he's just, I, I don't, I don't mind the character. I mean, he's not a character I would seek to write as a main character. So I don't, I don't have your issue with that. But I just, he's, he's a hard character for me to push. He's sanctimonious and smug in the TV series. And um, I like Daniel Jackson in the movie. And it could boil down to the actor. Um, I just don't really like Michael Shanks. I think that could, that, that could very well be it. Um, but his characterization in the, in the show is he's, he's annoying as fuck. I just... I. I was really bummed when he came back and they sent Jonas packing.
but I, I think that writing um, Daniel as a character who goes back in time um, when he ascends to um, to save his wife, um, even if he doesn't stay with her. Um, yeah, Daniel was clearly willing to bend the rules of being having being an ascended being to, you know, drop little hints about stuff to Jack and whatever. So it's a little weird that he, you know, he's going to break the rules in a way that's going to leave him naked and, you know, with amnesia on some foreign planet. Um, although all planets are foreign. But anyway. Um, but here's a question. If someone ascends then time travels to a point that they were not ascended would the other ascended people notice them i don't i mean dude i mean i mean how does that work are they constantly keeping an eye on the new ones or do they have some mechanism in place or is it because if they don't know that this person is ascended would they even be looking for them i mean Clearly, I think that it was clear in canon that there were some ascended people who slipped through their past their notice as long as they didn't use their powers. So if Daniel time traveled to a time when he was not ascended, dropped down into a human form, did not use any of his abilities as an ancient, to and then just verbally manipulated the fuck out of everybody he got his hands on, they couldn't do a damn thing to him. They probably wouldn't even notice him. Conceivably. I think that's consistent with canon, though. You could actually write it. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that that the Ascended wouldn't notice someone time-traveling. But, you know, it's. But I do think it's consistent enough with what we see in canon that you could write it that way. Um, oh, I think but, Daniel Jackson in the movie loved her. He stayed on that planet for her. It was not in any single way platonic. And I don't think I, I like to believe that he did not consummate that so-called marriage that night. Um, I what I do know from from the book, um, the books that her father made a habit of giving her to anybody who come through the gate who he believed was representing raw. So that was the first time she had been given to a visitor of their world. Just the last. Um, and that's in the books that were written by the guys who wrote the movie. Um, the movie kind of, it, I mean, it's not a stretch from what you see in the movie to believe that that is definitely canon. But I do so, believe he loved her. And I do believe if you follow that through, then the Daniel Jackson that we first meet in SG1, um, it's the same character. And he, I believe he loves Share. Um, and I believe he never would have left Abydos if she hadn't been kidnapped. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, and and the the Daniel of this the TV series has had a lot of time to get to to know her, and he was clearly happy there. Um, the only thing missing from his life was Kleenex, which you know, I understand. There's nothing like needing to blow your nose when you need to. I mean, Puffs is the best. <laughs> um, Especially with aloe. But don't, I just, but don't clean your glasses with them, man. That's, the, that's a bad idea. I am way allergic to the lotion that they put in. Really? Tissues. That sucks. I know. I know. Um, your poor nose. 
I mean, it makes my nose less irritated, but it's redder. So it's like I get more redness, but there's not that abrasive. You know? <laughs> a lot rude off the red nose reindeer. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> it puts the, you know, Mary Jane, when you said with the lotion, I immediately thought it puts the lotion on its skin. It puts skin. The lotion. Yes. <sighs> you can't help it. ruined that word for me. Yes. <laughs> um. But when it comes, actually, I have a hard time actually seeing Daniel um, with the way he, with, to me, the way he was characterized as being the guy who just decides to willy-nilly time travel without, just just to save one person. It. Well, another thing you could take, another twist you could take on that is if Ball actually killed Jack O'Neill and didn't revive him. Because we know in that episode where Daniel's trying to get Jack O'Neill to ascend, that Ball has killed him several times. Maybe even dozens of times. And revived him in a sarcophagus and then dumped him in that cell. Um, he's torturing him for information on um, the Tok'ra that Jack was carrying. Uh, so what if he didn't revive him? Daniel's clearly invested in Jack O'Neill at this point. Maybe that's the final straw, the the line, his line in the sand. Yeah, could be. Speaking, Richard E. Anderson turned 70 this year. I feel so old. Right? <laughs> Why you got to bring that up? <laughs> I was I was on Google when I saw it because I needed a picture of Jack O'Neill for my um my collage for J November, right? And I was like, 70? Are you fucking serious? <laughs> Praise Bast. Okay. Um I do so I do I think Daniel's a hard character to push. Um but if you're yeah, gonna push there are a lot of circumstances in Canaan that really should push And him. he was just didn't didn't so you got to push him pretty hard um to get him to take some kind of nuclear action and and what what nuclear is depends upon what you're trying to accomplish if you want your character to time travel well for starters make it in a fandom where that's even remotely possible um and then yeah it's got to be pretty cat because i actually think it's for the most part there have been a few times that i would say this is an exception but for the most part you know the world has to be going to hell in a handcart for the audience to understand why your character is traveling back in time to change things. Um, that's my train of thought. Um, but if your character's just traveling back in time to save one person, that can be a little bit difficult to relate to because that's a lot of risk and it, it can, it can be difficult to carry that, that through with this character being your protagonist that they would risk the futures of everybody they've known to save one person. There's a Hobbit fic where Bilbo goes back in time and he gets the one ring and um, either shortly before or after the Battle of the Five Armies, um, Tyrell and Legolas and um, Bard find out he has the one ring and Tyrell is furious that he has taken this risk of um, 
of having this ring and not immediately trying to 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 destroy it and that he's gone through this whole basic fucking quest um it was a work in progress and i haven't finished it but so she agrees to take him to mordor to dispose of the ring her and bard and legolas and eventually thorin gets his mind back and wants his hobbit and can't find his hobbit and finds out that Terrell and Bard have gone off um, with his Hobbit. And I think this might be the fic where Dwalin starts calling Bard Bilbo's mistress. Really? <laughs> he says the mistress. I feel like I, I feel like you need to find this story and send me the link. And so, but it it, it gets terrible because they get attacked by orcs and they get separated. And then Bilbo is by himself and he's running and Thorin's trying to catch up with him. And um and then I, it was a work in progress. So I don't think I ever finished it. But that it, it might working. be a separate fic where Jawalan calls Bard the mistress. That might have been one where he was already married to Thorin, living in in the mountain. And every time he would. Bard would send a letter to Bilbo. Dwalin would mention that Bilbo had gotten a letter from his mistress. <laughs> Something like that. Anyways. Whose pigtails? There, there could was, be more was, than one fic where Bard Thorin. Well, but who's so he's trying to pull Thorin's pigtails yeah. with that. Okay. So that's I'll some shenanigans right there. Right the mistress uh but yeah and so and bard and terrell both get injured um and i think that thorin catches up with bilbo shortly after he leaves gladriel's forest i don't remember i it's, it's been a long time and there was a while there where i was like binging hobbit fic yeah sometimes you go into a fandom and you just you read so many stories so quickly not only do you can't like you can't keep one straight from another, but you start mixing them together. Blending, like, read, that's how Hooker ended up saving Vance's kids in my head. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's like, you know, you've got, like, you tell somebody that this story contained these four things, and no, it turns out there's four different stories. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, great. Now I got four stories to read again. It'll be like reading new stuff, especially when you got fibro. <laughs> the problem is, if you read them all together again, you're going to keep thinking it's one story. Yep. So you have to leave yourself a note and go, these these are the four stories that you think are one. <laughs> so some characters like so when it comes to character with the broken give a fuck, I think the most important thing about what you do is what are you trying to accomplish? Do you just want them to leave? If you want them to travel back in time, you've gotta you gotta break their give a fuck a little bit harder than you gotta do if you're gonna have them just get a new job. Um, because breaking like time travel is huge, huh? Time travel is huge. So you gotta mix a mixture of motivation and grief, desperation. Yeah, desperation works well. I because mean, like the breaking Tony Stark's give a fuck is a little different after the Avengers than it is after Infinity Wars. You know, it, it it's not quite the same thing. So, um. You know how hard you want, we, yeah. If if you want your character to travel time travel of their own volition, the, the motivation has to be deep. 
But yeah, if you want your child character to charm travel, you can force them to do that against their will. <laughs> well, that too. They don't, you don't have to break their, break, you know, break their give a fuck to get them to time travel. You just in fact, the another... time travel could break their give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, it very well could because they get back and they go, "I cannot believe I got to go through puberty again." Fuck all this shit. Fuck you and fuck you and unfuck you. I hope you never get laid again. <laughs> We we never got laid in the last timeline. It'd be banging if we could do it now. <laughs> Let me make sure you never get laid. Yeah, we do know what it takes to break Clint Barton's give a fuck. And it's ugly that he survived it. I'm not I'm I'm real fucking bitter, actually. <laughs> I can't even lie. Dr. Strange. I don't know enough about Dr. Strange. Jillian? What would break his give a fuck? I mean, I think in canon, his give a fuck got kind of broke. That's how he wound up becoming the sorcerer. Um, He just, you know, not everybody, you know, goes off to Nepal seeking mystical cures because they can't get any other doctor on the planet to commit to doing any more surgeries on their hands. So, um, his give a fuck was definitely broke. He pushed everybody out of his life. He nearly lost everything and then went around the world chasing um, mystical accounts of miracle cures. That's not and the actions of a man of science who, who has their give a fuck intact. Didn't he defeat his enemy by just being an asshole? Um. Basically, uh, Dormammu, he, what he did is he put them in a time loop where every time he died, he came back and um, came up. So he, he says to, um, he, he walks up to Dormammu the first time and says, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. And Dormammu kills him immediately, basically. And then it starts over and it happens again. Well, he and Dormammu are in the loop together. So Dorm Dormammu remembers this. And he's like, what is this? What is this? And um, Dr. Strange is determined to just be killed over and over and over again until Dormammu basically agrees. He's not letting him out of that temporal loop until he agrees to back the fuck off and take his little minions with him. Quit trying yeah. to eat the quit trying to eat the earth, quite literally. Take your minions and go, or we are gonna stay in this little bubble, and I don't care how many ways and times you kill me. I mean, either way, he accomplishes his goal, right? Yep. <laughs> either the dude goes away and doesn't eat the planet, or they're stuck in that time loop and he doesn't eat the planet. Either way, he wins. <laughs> yep. <sighs> and assuming Dormammu saw the obvious outcome, which is not kill Doctor Strange, all he has to do, all Doctor Strange then has to do is kill himself, and the loop starts again. So, you know, I mean, but I mean, the thing is, Doctor Strange remembers all those loops, so he's pretty... By the time that's all done, and he's kind of taken the role of Sorcerer Supreme... I think, I don't know, his give a fuck might be permanently broke, but I think permanently broke give a fuck sort of looks kind of zen on him. I mean, it's kind of like, not only is his field barren, but someone assaulted it. Right. It's like, meh. But, you know, that's why I think he he's so deadpan when he's dealing with, you know, a lot of the problems. Um, like when um, Thor and 
um, Loki are looking for um, Odin. And he's just like, you know, oh yeah, whatever. He, he's subjecting to all these weird kind of hallucination things, you know, that they have. Um, but he's just like, you know, what are you do? What are you doing here? I keep an eye on these kinds of threats, these interdimensional threats on Earth. What are you doing here? Oh, you're just looking for your dad. Okay, I can help you with that, and then you'll go right. And then like, and he's just. It was just he, he just I think that experience of dying over and over and over again, it I think it probably broke something permanently. Um I don't know how his reaction to Loki stands up to like his characterization, but I do think what he did to Loki was obscene. I agree, the falling the the falling through space well falling through. Um but however, um I will say <laughs> that it was something that was done to him, so it probably is not something that he thought of as being that extreme. And maybe he no, didn't know but it wasn't history. about what he did; it was about what the writers did. I mean, because they made a habit of through the end of those last two movies, um, basically emotionally and physically torturing their characters in a way that was supposed to be funny. Right. I mean, you can look at the fat jokes. Um, yeah, the jokes they made at Thor's expense for having PTSD. Yeah, but when it came to Doctor Strange, he was introduced to the mystical um, through basically th falling through space and these weird hallucinations for who knows how long. And that's how he found out that it was real because he didn't believe her when she told him about you know sort of magic and mysticism, and so she basically puts throws him. Um, I don't remember if it, he, he was thrown through an astral journey through different dimensions, falling through them, or if that was all. But anyway, his perception was falling. So, um, but I don't think it's an asshole move by Strange particularly, but it is definitely an asshole move by the author, by the author of this of the script because they're making fun. They're making, using a punchline of Loki's trauma. It's a trauma of him not only falling from the Rainbow Bridge um, and seeing that betrayal his, his father saving Thor, but not him. Although he did let go. Um, and neither one of them wanted him to let go. But he did anyway. And then he fell into the hands of Thanos and was tortured. So, that's not actually funny, Russo's. Well, I don't think, I mean, a lot of the stuff they tried to pitch to us as being funny in the series was not funny. Um, they made a lot of jokes about, they, they basically present, presented the whole Hulk banner um, integration as being humorous, and it wasn't. No, they essentially murdered Hulk. Well, they kind of murdered Bruce, too. And what was left behind wasn't... Because that wasn't Bruce that was there. No. And honestly, he was... That what was left was almost incompetent with science. Like, how is that even useful? It was like Bruce decided that being big and strong was more important than being smart. Yeah, it was just it was just a lot of painful decisions they made about those characters. Actually, every single character suffered in some way from character assassination at the hands of the writers, and it's just really tragic. I mean, our first introduction to the Black Widow is that she's a honey trap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're left to wonder exactly how many people has she had to sleep with for Shield? Oh, probably a lot. 
Anyways. <sighs> so, um, not that Marvel rants aren't always a good time. Um, but when it comes to the broken give a fuck, in terms of like the way the question was originally phrased, um, the piece of this I don't think we've talked about. Let me go back to the question. That is not the question. Okay. Um, wow, I highlighted a completely different. <laughs> um, would you have to change their character? Would that change the character if they, if you change their response that drastically? And how do you walk the line? Um, I think. I think actually one of the key things about pushing a character that far is you still need to make them recognizable because if you change them to the point that all they are is for the entirety of your story is like rage and fury. Um, I think it's going to be hard for the audience to relate to them. The other side of it is, is that you can't put your character through a whole bunch of shit and have them come out the other side of it. Exactly the same. You have to demonstrate growth. Yeah. But they need there needs to be a core of the character that is still the character. Yeah. Um, like I think I think writing a character who's got a very firm moral center, who is very concerned, who's spent their life dedicated to um, um, upholding the law, be it as a law enforcement or in, as a like a district attorney or something along those lines and you give them just a tiny nudge and they give it all up and become a criminal they start selling drugs and running guns i'm pretty sure that's the um the actual plot of breaking bad <laughs> perhaps perhaps <laughs> um that's the guns part i don't know <laughs> but i think that you've got to do something a little bit more you gotta do actually i think to take character like that and have them be recognizable you're gonna have to demo you have to show the audience what pushed them to the point that they're willing and honestly i don't see how maybe they become a criminal but i don't see like gun running as being the the choice for a character like that it, it just is it's like what really it's one thing to say fuck fuck i'm done with law and order it's another thing to become the antithesis of what you've ever been so people have talked about Kirk and Spock in the chat room. Um, we can see in canon, especially in the new ones, exactly what either one of them would do when pushed to the breaking point. Um, in the original series, uh, we see James Kirk go to the wall and go over it following the death of Spock. Um, at the hands of, basically at the hands of Khan. Um, in the new series, we see Spock lose his shit when Khan causes the death of Kirk. And he would have beaten him to death if he hadn't been stopped. Yeah, he would have. And I think so, and only because they need and I actually in that the way I interpreted that scene is only because they needed him. If even with Yahura standing showing up and saying, Don't kill him. If she hadn't been clear, we need him to save Kirk. I think he'd have still been dead. Yeah, he just um, he wouldn't have stopped. The only reason he stopped is because he was told that Khan's mere existence could save Jim Kirk. And you see Spock in the original series. 
go through a series of um, losses and gains. But he goes off the reservation, so to speak, when Kirk is <laughs> framed and imprisoned. He starts lying his ass off. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, I'm going to go get my captain. <laughs> you need to get out of the way. This is now my ship. We're going to, I'm we're going to go throw, on space. We're going to throw our wooden shoes into the engine and we are going to <laughs> sabotage this ship. Um, when, yeah, in the original series, when, when, when he thought he killed Jim Kirk, he was inconsolable. I mean, he was so emotionally overwrought that it took him out of Ponvar. But. So you see, you know, you there are plenty of examples of what would take them over the edge in canon. But what would take them over the edge enough to time travel is a little bit different. So, well, apparently I think it was a big cigar shaped ship. Killing everything on Earth. Well, yeah. <laughs> In space. <laughs> it's a space cigar. <laughs> Who wanted to talk to whales? <laughs> the space cigar. <laughs> I love those memes that um, were, I don't remember exactly how it was phrased. I've seen more than one, and each with different phrasing. But the last one I saw was a picture of the dolphins going up to the going up to space in the, from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy he says, anybody check the dolphins? Are they still here? Um, in reference to the way 2020 has gone. Um, and yeah, I think that's something we need to do on a regular basis is check to see if the dolphins are still around. Yeah. And the whales. Just Have they left? Have they left? Or, or, is, or is, you know, every, you know, that's the way this will be year. If, if that cigar, that whale cigar showed up. <laughs> the whale cigar. At the end of this year, I'd be like, yep, it's 2020. They're coming for the but, whales. I hope they respond. It looked like a big cigar, right? I'm not the only one who thought that, right? <laughs> it does look exactly like a big cigar. And may I say that's yet another movie where the Golden Gate Bridge gets destroyed. Um, <laughs> I would not be surprised if it actually was somebody's cigar. It may have been. This is true. They may have modeled it after a cigar on a cigar. But, I mean, the thing is, we see... Do you want your character pushed to the point where their give a fuck takes them away from their canon circumstances? I think at least most of the shows I watch or write in or even have had an inkling of ever writing in, um, that is, we see examples of the character being pushed to that far. Um, that is the most unfortunate image. Why am I just now noticing that that like a penis? You think the well, okay. God damn it. I can't unsee that. <laughs> it's a cigar with a light penis. <laughs> Someone's getting some. Uh, <laughs> Apparently whales. I just <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <laughs> the cigar's penis is about to fuck the planet. 
Betty Holder's definitely not trying to help. <laughs> She's trying to burn that image into our brain so we can never watch that movie without laughing again. I never have been with this movie without laughing because my favorite line in Star Trek happens in that movie. Doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. <laughs> <laughs> I want that pill. Not that I need new kidneys, but I'd like to have it on reserve for when I need one. Right? And I grew a new kidney. Um, so, when it comes to uh, what was the there was, I feel like there's a part of that question that, that still I still have we still have not answered what was it? Um, do you have to change them drastically and how do you walk the line? Um, I think walking when it comes to the characterization piece of it, you want to walk the line between the logical ramifications of the changes that you have made while keeping your character recognizable, but also um, sympathetic to the audience. And I don't mean sympathetic in a boohoo kind of way, but you need your character, you want your audience to relate to your protagonist. And if your audience hates your protagonist because you have made them too angry or they're doing things that are too awful, that's not the goal. So I think the, that's, that's, that's the characterization line that I would advise people to try to, to walk is and sometimes good people do shitty things when they're really upset, but you don't want it to be to such a degree that your audience can't get past it. And that's what happens sometimes is people take a character who's been pushed to the edge or whatever, and they have them do things that are so awful that they're worse than the antagonist of the story. You don't want Tony Stark to be worse than Thanos. You don't want Harry Potter to be worse than Voldemort. You know, that's not, that's not the goal. So I think it's important to um, figure out you're doing this, you're pushing them this far. What is this going to do to them? And you got to follow through on those changes. How is this going to alter them? And you want to show that progression because most people some, some things happen abruptly, but there's still going to be fallout. There's going to be a progression of events for them, right? Um, like, when in Darkly Loyal, Kira shows, like, what pushes Harry and Draco to the edge. But the fallout, it's not just an instant, like, they wake up in the past and everything. They're instantly the way they're going to be for the rest of their lives. There's a progression in how they change, how those ripples happen, how they deal with um, Hermione's safety and how they feel about, um, you know, because they get really worked up when she is in danger, which makes sense because it's kind of, you know, there's trauma around her death. So, um, that's not like an instant thing that just happens. So there's a progression in how the events that push them to go back in time, there's there's ripples into how that affects them over time. So I think that's one of the important things to 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 show the audience, as opposed to just having your character wake up and be a completely different person because they got mad yesterday. Because that's not good character work. People don't people don't turn on a dime like that. If my characters had immediately woken up in the past and started killing people left, right, and center, um, it would have been 1,000% crack. Um, but it would also have been really jarring. 
and um, it would have been a really difficult road. And the reader would have gotten deeply desensitized to the violence. To the point where, as an author, if you want to ramp up that tension and ramp up the excitement, you would have to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Like I read, um, and Julie started reading, um, I bowed out and she was asleep while I did it. So I, I caught it before she got to this point. But we were reading, I was reading, we were both reading a story in Hannibal and I was a little bit ahead of her. Um, and Hannibal has a pretty rough canon. Let's put it that way. Um, and in order to make, I guess in order to create excitement or to make the characters um, get progressively worse than their canon circumstances. And this was very much an AU, by the way. It, it was, was very not, AU. Um, both of them had different jobs and they didn't canon. So there Will was really no canon in, in the FBI. No. He wasn't any kind of law enforcement. Um, I don't think Hannibal was a psychiatrist either. I don't, I don't know. He, uh, he may have been. He, 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 he wasn't a practicing psychiatrist if he was at that point in the story. No, but they basically take a character um, who is marginally interested in Will. Um, I guess Will's in, you know, Will wasn't interested. Um, and they torture him to death. But it's done in such a way that the character tortures himself. And they watch. It, it, was, it was, frankly, the most sadistic thing I've ever seen in my life. And I have actually read quite a bit of um, Hannibal, to be honest. Um, I even read the original books. Um, watched all the movies. Uh, and by the... I had to stop reading it. And I wrote a note to Jelly saying, "You don't, don't, do not read any more of that fic, because it was heinous." And the point was, is the author started at this base where, you know, Hannibal's a cannibal, and Will's okay with it. And how am I going to ramp up tension and make it worse? Well, well, what her choice was, that their choice—I don't know if male or female—was to turn. Will Graham into a raging sociopath and Hannibal Lecter as a psychopath who got turned on by Will's sociopathology. Which was weird because Will didn't come across as a sociopath up to the point in the story where I was. And Hannibal didn't come across as a psychopath. So when I when I heard where the story went, I was like, how did she get from where I was to there? I stopped reading before they actually fucked on the corpse, but I'm pretty sure that was coming. Um, I'm, I'm glad I didn't finish that because I just some things I don't need, you know, indelibly. I mean, I don't know for certain that it happened, but I, that's where it, that's where it looked like it was heading. So, yeah. you know, so I closed it, threw up a red flag, flag on the play. Which I was glad for, because sometimes we we were reading the same story. Sometimes, and we didn't plan this. Sometimes we would just stumble into reading the same story at the same time. Um, you had the same filters on, is what that happened was. You go into yeah. Cannibal, no ABO. <laughs> Which, we, we didn't put that in there at first. It didn't occur to either one of us that we needed to. Because sometimes you just assume there's not going to be. Although my days of assuming there's not going to be ABO in a fandom is gone. Um, but, yeah, so I, it didn't occur to me there's going to be a lot of ABO in Hannibal. 
that's did yeah. how that is how I found out about how oh, yeah unnecessary rough just a fifteen yard penalty. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a third down, but um, it uh uh that Hannibal fandom is the reason that I now know what a thoroughbred alpha is. I've yeah, never but- heard that term before, and I heard it repeatedly because I actually read some ABO fix in Hannibal because I was like, well, "How bad could it be?" I mean, it's already cannibalism. I'm honestly not sure that I've ever laughed so hard as that one story you and I both were reading at the same time that night. Um, oh. I, I laughed oh, my ass off. But will digresses. But and we were just in hysterics, and then, and it was obviously intended to be funny. So I'm, we're not making fun of the fic. It was intended to be funny, but um. But yeah, we won't talk about Hannibal too much because I mean, some people really get upset when we talk about Hannibal on the podcast. So, yeah, I got an email, a long ass email, accusing me of what was the term they used? Fetishizing <sighs> cannibalism. Yeah, yeah. Because we got yeah. tickled over that line about he'll eat. I'll my eat face. your face right, right off your skull. Yeah, which we joke about because that story's cracked. That's to- total. Story's total crack, but honestly, yeah. if you read no other fic in in Hannibal, read that one. Hannibal goes to jail as a cannibal should, but he keeps getting out because the FBI isn't treating Will the way he thinks Will should be treated. And he just apparently walks out the front door, and they ask him, hey, "How does he keep escaping, Doctor Chilton?" And Chilton's like, "I don't know." I don't know. Why do you let him use the phone? Because he'll eat my face. Will you only say that because he has? <laughs> <laughs> he even steals Chilton's car. <laughs> but my favorite part is when he's 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 Will gets kidnapped, and Hannibal goes and rescues him in Chilton's car, and then he drives by the FBI team, giving them the evil eye, <laughs> getting the stink eye from the front seat of Chilton's stolen car, and then and the thing is, after all these events, he just keeps driving himself back to the psychiatric prison, the mental you know state hospital for the criminally insane, and um. He just keeps taking himself back, and it's, he can, he sees he'll use the phone whenever he wants. The absurdity level delivery is high, and, and and weirdly, he gives Will Furbies when Will's in the hospital, which is probably the cruelest thing he's ever done to anybody. So we were talking about this that line on a podcast one night, and it just really and I get, I get it. I totally understand that cannibalism can be a very big trigger for some people, and we have never really like had a deep dive on the cannibalism aspect of the whole show. Um, and we don't, I think one of us fetishize cannibalism. Come on. But um, anyway, yeah. It but just, that line was really fucking funny. And at one point, Chilton's like, why does he keep coming back? Yes, why does he keep coming back? Yes, that's it. Thank you, Desert. It's called Come it's Around Again by Hito. Hito? Yeah. Hito? H-I-T-O. Um, yeah. And um. And they were just really, somebody was really upset with us because they felt like that people who talk about body autonomy and how important it is, that we would even discuss a storyline where somebody would feed somebody people without their knowledge isn't respecting people's body autonomy. It's like, think, it's like, I mean, obviously we know that. Obviously. So, so we try to be careful about how much we talk about Hannibal in any, without it being the topic of the podcast, because I know it gets some people really, really upset. Like, um, but I'll go on record and say that that, that that email was completely and utterly out of line. Um, I'm an adult, and my own mother doesn't talk to me that way. 
Yeah. Well, it was somebody who was needed to express their deeply profound disappointment in in the two of us for being interested in that fandom, basically. But they, but they only emailed me. <laughs> yes. Yes. But so I cc Julie on my response, so she'd be aware of how she'd been talked about and disparaged. <laughs> well, our characters were besmirched. Yeah, we did a plot. We did a we did a we did a podcast specifically about the Hannibal, and and I had mentioned something about. I don't. Even, I have to listen to listen to the podcast from the context, but we were talking like in a plotting context. Um, Hannibal, you know, if he opened, if he has a restaurant that he would serve. You know, people without and cert, like that, people would be on the menu, and it would not be something that people would know about, obviously. But that's a mirror for canon, so it's just it's like when, literally when, took place during canon. If you have a trigger for cannibalism, why the hell were you listening to our Lean Into Hannibal podcast? I'm asking for a friend. Jilly. I'm asking for Jilly. Yeah, me specifically. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, And I've I've heard from, and this isn't the only person I've heard from. I should, actually, Kira is the person who heard from this person on that subject. Um, but I've heard from some people about the whole Hannibal situation and hoping that I don't write any more Hannibal and all of this kind of business. Um, I'd be, be knee-deep into a 280k story of Hannibal right now. <laughs> and I don't have time for that. But, you know, we yeah. all have things we, we all have things we don't like. I get it. And trust me, I, I totally understand that cannibalism is an issue. I mean, I, I stayed away from that fandom as long as I possibly could. But but we got seduced. Damn it, Imanjir. I mean, that that woman should be illegal. Uh, yeah, should be illegal. She should. It, it, uh, the first time yeah, I read Michael Black School's going really well for her. <laughs> yeah, the first time I read Blackbird, I was just blew my mind. I was stunned. I was just stunned. I was like, I think that's probably the most beautiful thing I've ever read. Um, it's gorgeous. Um, it's Blackbird by Imanjer, and it is on um, Ao3, and it's in the podcast link library, but. Someone find that. So maybe you could just get a, a link to Imanjer. Um, Wish Babies is the Hoyden. Wish Babies is the Hoyden. It's called with, with a Crown of Stars. Um, but and Imanjer, you can't go wrong with the Hoyden. Yeah, you can't go wrong with the Hoyden or with Imanjer. Um, but with Imanjer, I recommend from the top. I would say read Blackbird. What Dream series and, and the Taken and from Ruby, Ruby series. Yeah, those three are the best. I think my my number two is Taken for Rubies and then What Dreams is number three. I think Kira's order is inverted. Yeah, I would prefer I prefer What Dreams over Taken for Rubies. I put that one off for a while, but then when I read it, I really enjoyed it. So I don't know. I mean, it was I had I have an issue around forced feminization and I worried about that. But I should I read it yeah, I read it first and said no it, it I don't. I don't. Th I said I don't think this will bother you. And, and, and it didn't. But yeah. yeah, Blackbird, and then um, What Dreams Come, and then Take It for Rubies. But yeah, they're they're all awesome. Imanjer, thank you, Desert. I was just looking up Imanjer, but I appreciate whoever got the link. 
a very talented young woman, Imanjer is. Um, Blackbird but, is a Blackbird is a BDSM story, so BDSM isn't your cup of tea, which I don't think that's going to bother you, Chris. But no. for those of you who it isn't your cup of tea, um, it, what dreams is probably the safer bet. Now, and a Hannibal is a cannibal in all these fics, so do keep that in mind. Um, but Imanjer does not fetishize or glorify the cannibalism. So, um, but he is what he is. So she's very true to the character that way. Oh, Blackbird. Oh, it's beautiful. Blew, blew it's my beautiful. mind, girl. You will fall in love with Imanjer. The writing quality is top notch. The character, the characters are spot on, and the. The sex is great. The sex is great. The dominance is gorgeous. The submission is beautiful. I mean, it's just... It's a, it's a tour de force. I mean, probably... I would say easily the best handbook I've ever read. And definitely one of the best things I've ever read, period. I mean... Yeah, I mean... It's about not, just, not just in fan fiction, but, you know, in terms of anything I've read. Yeah, I agree. It would be in my top 22. Definitely. I probably push it up to the top ten. There are a lot of books I like, but I like Blackbird a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, you need to sit down and read it. <laughs> and you like good, you like good long reads, so um, as I recall, Blackbird is quite lengthy. Yeah, but I could not put it down. I could not walk away from it. I sat up and read the whole damn Black thing in one sitting. Blackbird is 90k. Absolutely the what, gorgeous. The What Dream series, the pieces are a little shorter, but the What Dream series is about 93k. She also has a series Ladders that I've not read. Oh. I started Ladders. Ladders is really angsty compared to the others. Yeah, I'm not really into angsty. I've read I've read a couple I think I've read parts of I've read read the at least the first part of what of ladders but it, it's definitely an angstier angstier journey that I have sometimes have not quite been moved for I've taken taken for rubies is just shy of eighty k for the whole series I would say that length isn't as important to me as um, quality and a lot of times people in fandom equate length with greatness. Um, and my sweet spot on the novel length recently has been about 120, 115, 120 ish. It depends on the fandom. Yeah. Depends on the fandom. Um, but when I'm reading and I see somebody sell down 500K in a single novel, what they're calling a single novel, I think to myself, no, that is not one big book. And if it is, you've got problems. Because I would rather read a tight 50K than a loose 150K. Yeah. When it comes to sci fi fandoms, fantasy, um, anything with a kind of paranormal or supernatural element around 190 90 to 110k, so that 100k ish feels really comfortable to me. But with the procedurals, I'm wanting closer to 50 to 60, and I want it to be tight because you don't have all these world elements that need expanding on. And so sometimes a 120k on a procedural, I'm like, what could they possibly be doing in there? Look at that sweet summer child. <laughs> To me, in fandom, when I see 300, 400, 500K, 
I'm looking at an author who doesn't know how to end a book and start a new one. Right. Um, it's not uh, about world building or characterization. It is about the inability to tell when their clim when their climax is and a new beginning it starts. Um, because if you look at those books, you you can see that ebb and flow. The author just doesn't recognize it. And you can see very natural ends to particular works. And if you can't, it's because they've got that and then, and then, and then. And then it's like they climb to the top of their narrative and then they ride it for 300 miles. Yeah. And then sometimes that um, those stories have a very clunky ending. It's like the author just got exhausted. And they went. fell off the edge of the cliff and like that little dude on um, Price is Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he's he's yodeling up the side of the mountain and flick. That's that's one of the that's, damn side. That's one of the price ones, right? Where you're like yeah. guessing gro grocery store prices or something. Like, yeah. oh, he yodels. You over you overestimated how much uh that item was gonna be. He's gonna have to move up four dollars. Um I don't know. It's the one with a little climber on the mountain. And then if he goes too far, he tips off the top and falls. And he yodels. Now there, there are some authors that if they turn anyway. in 150K <laughs> in a procedural, I know it's going to be good. But um, most of the authors I think of are really good who write in procedurals. Most of their novels are right around 60K. It's, it's really in that traditional novel length because procedural to me says contemporary and a contemporary novel is traditionally 50 to 70 K ish typically yeah. ish. Yeah. So, and, and what you've read in original works kind of informs your expectations in fan fiction, right? So contemporary romance, whatever certain kinds of genre fiction, you're going to expect it to be right around, you know, that 50 to 80K range. Sci-fi, much bigger. Fantasy, up to, sometimes up to 200K even for fantasy. Um, so, and when you get to fandom, you kind of feel the same way. And once you throw the sentinel element on top of anything, you're moving into a bigger thing because you do then have world building. There's no That's world it. building. Cliffhanger. That's it. He's it's called cliffhanger. That, yeah, that's it. That's the game. I could totally He's visualize it too. He's yodeling up the side of the mountain, and he just falls off. I mean, we've all read that story that happens that way. There's this big buildup, and then flump. Yep, it's like, oh, right off the cliff. Okay. Like, that just ended. Although I've, discovered, okay, my, although I've discovered my least favorite thing lately with, with is not even the abrupt. It's when you've had all this angst and trauma and drama, and you get, like, no resolution really and then you get jumped to an epilogue a year later i call that the rug sweeping end the they what the rug sweeping end they have swept everything that was wrong under the rug and now you've got an epilogue and you should be happy you need to forget everything yeah. that happened that went wrong because everything's okay now yeah. it's classic rug sweeping i read this story it was probably was a couple weeks ago i'm gonna be a little further back i don't remember Anyway, this character had been kidnapped, and it was all this angst and drama. The whole story was about them trying to get him back, and it was switching between his point of view, trying to free himself, and then other characters' point of view is worrying about him and figuring out what was going on. Anyway, so the minute he's rescued, 
like the minute, like literally he gets rescued. It's like two paragraphs. He gets rescued. He calls his lover and says, I'm okay. And what you're really wanting is the reunion, right? And it's like, I'm okay. I'll see you soon. Is the end of the last chapter. And then it skips forward a year. It says, it's, it's you go to the next chapter. So if there's one chapter left, so I'm thinking I'm going to get the reunion. And I click the next chapter and it says epilogue one year later. And I wanted to throw my iPad. I was so, I felt so robbed of any closure around all that wump and angst because of that sweeping everything under the rug. My left eye could be in a permanent squint. I was just like, no, no, you can't. You got to give the, it, there might as well have been no closure. It, I, I got to the end of the epilogue and yes, they had a sweet life and everything was good and rosy and stuff, but I felt so deeply, deeply like the Cheated. story. Yeah. It, it was like, there was no resolution, even though there technically had been, but the, the had been was all in this blank space. And it was like, all that resolution was in this blank, this blank space between chapters. And it felt like this story that I had invested, you know, 60,000 words in had never ended. It, it's just, it's just, I, I don't read whips and it felt like I had read an angsty whip that never ended. I was just. That's terrible. I put that author on my do not trust list. <laughs> for, for good reason. Speaking of epilogues, I don't make a habit of them. As y'all might know. Um. I don't like prologues, and I don't like epilogues, and I don't like flashbacks. So whenever I do one, it's with purpose. Because I don't like any of them. So, all the world has an epilogue. Now, if you've read all the world, and you know the ending. If you don't, cover your ears. And you know the epilogue. Now, here's the thing about that that I think a lot of people didn't notice is that it is a direct mirror to the Deathly Hallows. Which is why the epilogue is 15 years later. I had an asshole email me and bitch about the epilogue not being Dumbledore's trial. What? Now, I, I want to ask them, did you bother to fucking read my story? Because if you had read my story, you would recognize that Dumbledore became a non-entity. He became a annoyance. And number one, a trial. You're, you're right. I mean, a trial would be another whole chapter or three. Well, that's rising action. I Right? Anyways, I, it, it's just like Please don't email me ever again because your craft advice is sucky. Because they prefaced this email by telling me that they were an accomplished writer in their own right. And they wanted me to know that my epilogue was, um, I chose a terrible place for my epilogue. Safe place. If you weren't doing the 15 year jump, if you were to deal with wanting to address the fallout of the trial, you would actually probably start the epilogue at the end of the trial because otherwise you're introducing rising action and really, and with, and I just, oh, dude, that's such, I can't believe they even asked that question. The whole point, okay, the epilogue that we get in Deathly Hallows shows Harry married to Jenny. Right. Their kids are going off to Hogwarts. My epilogue shows him married to Hermione. They have a kid who's really geared up and ready for the annual Garden Gnome Rebellion. All he needs 
is his daddy and some war porridge. Gotta get this real show on the road. And that was the point that Harry has this, this, this beautiful life that he's created and he has this safe space he can take his family to. And the only thing they have to worry about is fighting gnomes over the rose bush. Or maybe under the rose bush. <laughs> and that's the point. And I hate it. I hate it when I do something with such purpose. And then some asshole comes along and not only doesn't get it, but tries to give me really terrible bad writing advice. Terrible, no good, bad writing advice. Yeah. They no. definitely have a trebuchet. Epilogues to me, I mean, I use epilogues occasionally. I don't usually use epilogues if I'm planning to write a sequel to a story because epilogue, if you're going to do an epilogue in a multi-part story, it goes at the end of the last story in the series. But whatever. Um, but epilogues are... <laughs> that's the wrong channel for that but that's fucking hilarious but I mean the thing is is though that, that the you could insert almost anything into into the first the part that is not going that channel right yeah <laughs> you, you could you know it, it's sort of like it's sort of like Mad Libs and use the same two answers Anyway, that's not going to make sense to anybody on the podcast, but oh, whatever. We'll just read it. Somebody says, somebody shared that said, somebody said, the spread of coronavirus is based on two factors. One, how dense the population is. Two, how dense the population is. To which somebody responds, you wrote the same thing twice. What's the other one? The original author says, you're number two. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's, that's funny as fuck. To be an actual epilogue, usually there's going to be some, There actually there needs to be some movement forward in time. Um, how much is up to you? But epilogues, you have a little bit of a different focus to the actual story. Otherwise, it just feels like more of the story. And I find the vast majority of epilogues in fandom are just the next chapter of the story. And, sometimes, and sometimes they literally start the very next word. Epilogue. And it's the very, it, you're still not even, you're not even in a different time and place. You're in the same scene that in you were in the room with the same characters in the same POV. Anyway, we have nothing, not that I have feelings about this, but I actually get, when I see something that is the very next scene labels an epilogue, I, I get a whole body twitch. I just can't deal with it. Anyways, I got bad writing advice this week. I used to get a lot more bad writing advice um, until I started doing the podcast and started talking about my process and writing. And um, I had somebody email me, um, I guess after maybe in the second year of my podcast, and um, it was an apology. <laughs> she said, when you first started posting, I used to try to give you advice on writing. I had no idea you had 30 years of, you know, 28, whatever it was, years of experience at the time. I'm thinking to myself, is is she insulting me or complimenting me? Because she used to give me writing advice like I was new, a newbie, immature writer. And now she knows that I'm not. Is she still saying that I need writing advice, but that she's not going to give it to me because I should know better? 
Or was she saying that I look like an immature writer despite my obvious experience? I never could quite figure out what she was apologizing for. <laughs> Maybe she doesn't even know. Maybe not. <laughs> I've had I've had more than one person send me, you know, advice for if I want to be professionally published, this is what you should do. And I was like, thank you for your unsolicited. And one of them was after I was at professionally published. And I went, well, although to be fair, I mean, the first person, I mean, I've, I've been, I was professionally published a long time ago, just not in the fiction market. So, right. you know, I just, it's, it's different for certain, it's certainly different. Um, and I completely understand that, but um, it's just, it was very weird. It's always very weird when you get unsolicited. This is what you need to do if you want to be published professionally. And I was like, Seriously, before I published Akira Tyrell, um, I used to get emails from people saying, I don't actually believe you're professionally published. It was their way of trying to psych, psych me into giving them my my other pain. Yeah, ex exactly. Like, like, I don't get that now that anymore that I publish under Kira's name. Isn't that weird how I just said that? Anyways, under the Kira name. Um <clears throat> I'm gonna fall for that ridiculous reverse psychology. Oh, I'm here. I'm seriously published. Here's all my pen names. Okay. It's like you know I'm not new, right? You know I'm, I'm, I didn't fall off the cabbage truck yesterday. It was the day before that. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was the day before. The farm boy's okay. It was a soft landing. I landed on a farm board, pure and perfect. <sighs> I don't know what she was trying to imply with her with her apology. I, I, I really don't to this day. And I don't think I'm in a position to ignore valuable writing advice. Um, but I solicit that from people I trust. Yeah, exactly. I don't just take writing advice from just anybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Chris. Insert blowjob here. This is a great place for a blowjob. Where's your actual words in that particular um, beta? This is a great place for a blowjob. Now, see, Actually, in this particular picture, I'm not sure if it's the man talking or the dog. Right? <laughs> But no, way way back when I had somebody suggest that I put um, a sex scene earlier in my story, it's back in my X Files days. Um, this is what my beta suggested I put a sex scene earlier in my story. I go, they aren't together yet though. And uh, she said, but they but they could have sex. And I was like, um, well, I guess it depends on whether or not you're writing erotica or romance. I was writing a very, I was writing an, an epic plot-driven story, actually. So I wasn't actually writing either. Um, they got together, but it was a sort of a background okay. thing. But yeah, just them. They, they just weren't going to have sex with each other until they were together. And it, it has nothing to do with, um, you know, not having sex with, if they're not in a relationship. It wasn't that. It's just, it, it, it would have. It, it would have screwed your characterization. Yeah, it, it just, it wouldn't have made sense for them to just be banging before they got together. I would have had to completely rewrite the story to put that sex scene in. In Chris's defense, there was absolutely no sex in Lantian Legacy when she did that beta. Well, sometimes so you need was, was no, no enemy within. So she was, so she's the reason there is any sex at all in No Enemy Within. 
So sometimes you need somebody to point out where you need a good sex scene. And sometimes you need somebody to point out where the sex scene could go. Because when I came up short on a challenge, which has happened, the, that's the only time I've ever happened in my life, where they had a hard limit on the word count. And I was like 600 words short or something. I've never come in under word count before. I was just so. <laughs> she sounds like a man who's talking about his erection. This has never happened so, to me before. It, it was never happened. It never. It's never happened since. Um, and Karen and Ladyholder both told me to put a blowjob in. And I was like, "But where? <laughs> but where?" Somebody suggested the where, but I, I really needed a Chris right then to go to know exactly where that blowjob could go. <laughs> <laughs> but I was so upset because I, I, you know, I wrote the challenge for people who really challenged. I was like. I'm like 600 words short. And they're like, no, we have a, we have a minimum. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? My story is done. I want to add a bunch of stuff just to, you know, I, and I felt like it was tight and it was put together and it was the way I wanted it. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And put in a blowjob. I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. It, it did wind up being a blowjob. 600 words is about a blowjob. Yeah. I mean, or a really intimate hand job with some chattiness, some talking. There was there was some intimacy in talking, so I think it actually did go up. I wound up going like two hundred words over. Better yeah, over than under in that case. Yeah, I finished. I even I even I think it's I think I even had it baited, and that's when I realized I was under word count. I was like, oh no, I'm under word count. I have to fix this. What am I going to do? And, then, and I was just so astonished with myself. I'm like, how'd that even happen? I've never come into word count before. I'm usually going over. It's you a good thing most... Them. Go ahead. Never watch what? I was going to say, it's a good thing most challenges don't have an... Up, most bangs don't have an, uh, an upper word count limit. Did you ever watch the movie Mannequin? Yeah, of course. Okay, so you know how that one guy's trying to get in that snotty woman's his his ex girlfriend's pants like the whole movie, and then when she's gets she gets really mad because she's jealous of the mannequin. She goes home with him, and he can't get it up, and he's laying in in in, in his bachelor bed, or actually sitting in it with his little silk sheets and shit, and he keeps pulling up the sheet, looking at his penis. He says, "No, this has ever happened to me before. It must be you. You're so cold." And then she leaves, and he's like, "Maybe I need a mannequin." <laughs> so that's, that's, that was me over that story anyways I want you to know that I did the hand gesture of him looking under his sheet when I was, when I was. of course you did <laughs> I have a blanket I have a blanket <laughs> that actually looks physically painful to type on um do you want to just look at it dark? Because I mean, I it's pretty, but actually use there's it. no way hell I'd want to use it. Yeah. She wants it decoratively. <laughs> <laughs> I need to use that as a, as the um, placeholder for sex scenes from now on. Insert deeply I think so. intimate genital contact here. I, just, I, I think so. Wow. That sums it all up. It needs to be the banner for the greeting Starfighters channel. I actually had some fetus ask me what that meant. I was like, I can't even talk to you. 
Nobody gets our jokes, our pop culture references. It's terrible. Somebody the asked you get, me, the it is. Somebody asked me the other day um, why all of the channels in in the Crossroads server are and junk. And I went. I have a sad. I sent them the link to the commercial. And like, you named all of your stuff after a Geico commercial. I'm like, do not judge. Do not judge. It's a, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's it's our thematic element for the I server. think it was born out of the fact that I have this atrocious accent, which reminded somebody of that commercial on the podcast one night. And so I did it for them on the podcast. Right. We did so we we Oh no. We, and then when you were looking to what to call, because we'd had the conversation on the podcast, this is back in blog talk days. You had the conversation on the podcast about the Geico commercial. And you like you knew it backward and forward, right? Yeah, she did mm-hmm. the commercial memorized. And then when she started doing the short format, um, because you know it was, your tires all flat and junk, um, was her doing the short format, the thirty-minute podcast. Uh, she, you were looking for a title. Kira's looking for a title for the them, and all of a sudden she goes short and junk, and that became then all of a sudden everything became and junk, <laughs> and junk, and junk. <laughs> Here's the thing. You know how I used to tell my husband, thank you. Thank you so much. And he didn't get it. Oh, that's that He tragic. didn't get it. I was being sarcastic. But then he watched The Closer. And the other day, I said it to him. I said, thank you. Thank you so much. He said, I know what you're doing, Brenda Lee. I went, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> now that's ruined. <laughs> He's like, he says, I know you're being an asshole. You don't actually mean that. She never did. <laughs> she never did ever. <laughs> and the first time, what is what is um, what is what is her mom's name? Oh, I'm, oh. Blank- I'm blanking on her mama's name. Willie Ray. Willie, Willie Ray. Ray yeah, Willie Ray Johnson. The first time you meet Willie Ray Johnson, and she says, "Thank you, thank you very much." It's like, oh my god, that's where Brenda got it. <laughs> That's not where she got. She got all her shit from her mama. Her mama is manipulative as fuck. Um, my favorite part is when she's talked that 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 young um, SWAT team guy into revealing why her daughter has um, security, has armed security in her home, and she and Brenda's gonna cuss this boy out, young man, and her daddy. Her daddy says, "Now, Brenda, you know he didn't have a choice." <laughs> She's feeding them in the kitchen. Willie Ray's feeding them in the kitchen and getting all their details. She knows everything about them. <laughs> and that's when you realize that whatever the CIA might have taught Brenda, it isn't the reason she's the closer. <laughs> she's the closer because of Willie Ray, yeah. And her daddy's just sitting there, just piece of reality check. You know this is not their fault. That's all on your mama. <laughs> Every single bit of it. Anyways, so I thanked him, thanked him very much, and he was just. He now it's ruined for me. It's ruined. A whole decade to be able to say that to him, and now I can't. Yes, you can. Yeah, but now it has a different connotation because he knows I don't mean it. <laughs> so now I can't even be sneakily sarcastic about stuff. 
Although the other day, um, I was giving him instructions. And then at the end, um, he turned to me and looked at me and he and he he looked at me. And I said, this is a crime scene, y'all. <laughs> and he got so tickled. <laughs> he had to leave. So I won. That's for those of you who have never seen the Geico pothole commercial. Because I'm a pothole. Let me get my cellular out. Call you wrecker. Oh, wait. <laughs> I ain't got no phone because I'm a pothole. Okay, bye. <laughs> but I used to know the whole damn thing. Our entire social fanish existence on the internet is based on this commercial. <laughs> Learn it. Know it. Live it. Be able to quote it. <laughs> I'll put the Geico commercial in the link library. I should probably pin it. Actually, Girl. I will pin it. Are you serious right now? Did you just see that? No. I'm she says, I had a partner ask if she could put some music on in the truck. And as Tub Thumping by Chumba Wumbuck, I, I never could say their name, came You're on. Right. She says, I just love old 90s music. Old? You need to go get a new partner. You know, I remember the day that I was um, listening to an oldie station and Like a Virgin came on. You just hurt me. And I was like, I looked at the radio. I was like, how fucking dare you betray me this way? <laughs> what, what the fuck is this? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> you can't make Madonna be an oldies. That's just not. What nightmares? <laughs> oh, the, the oldies. No, oh. that Madonna is the oldies. <laughs> Just drive the, the ambulance, ambulance. fetus. <laughs> That's right. She's a fetus. Jelana, go to the corner. Definitely go to the corner. Oh, Chris, that's just deeply unfortunate. You know what's worse than that, Chris? It's all those kids who got on Twitter and wanted to know why Jesse McCartney's daddy was performing on the Billboard Music Awards. I'm making such a terrible face. Should we end the podcast and we can just keep bitching about how old we are? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was on fucking Twitter. By the way, Twitter. Okay, anyways. I hope this has been beneficial and fun and entertaining and that you don't step in any potholes um, and that you guys have a fantastic week. Today is Monday. Wow, Monday. Have a happy fucking Monday. Say goodnight, Jilly. Good night, everyone. <laughs>